welcome to The Cinephiles, where we are honoring Hal Holbrook, who we lost just a few days ago. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California, and a voiceover artist as well. Um, and uh, an admirer of this man that we're going to speak about here as we do a new intro for one of our previous episodes of the great Hal Holbrook, who passed away at the robust age of 95, Steve. I'm not getting to 95. I don't know about you, but uh, I respect the fact that he got to 95 years old. Well, and, and it's so funny because we, we literally just recorded an introduction for Young Frankenstein in honor mm -hmm. of Cloris Leachman. And Hal Holbrook, like Cloris Leachman, worked and worked and worked right up until the very end. Like yes. just this incredible career. And of course, the role we're going to talk about for him today is his most famous, arguably, or one of his two most famous, maybe I'll say, mm -hmm. uh, which is Deep Throat in All the President's Men. But yeah. man, what a career. He uh, he he won a Tony for Mark Twain. He won mm -hmm. five enemy, Emmys, one Oscar nomination. He has the National Humanities Medal, which he won in 2003. I mean, it, you know, and again, it's just like we were talking about with Cloris Leachman. This is a career that spans seven decades. Yeah, pretty um, from 1950s on, yeah. Yeah. His his mom was a vaudeville dancer, and this is what I didn't know. He was born in 1925, one year before Cloris Leachman, in mm -hmm. Cleveland, Ohio. He had two sisters, and he and his two sisters were abandoned by their parents when they when he was two. Wow. Yeah. Raised by his grandparents, <laughs> went to military school, went to Denison University, and as his uh, honors project to graduate. He did a piece of some work on this guy named Mark Twain. Hmm. And that is where it started. It started in college. Hmm. That's where he first had the idea to kind of do a little performance as Mark Twain. And I don't know what it was, but he, this performance as Mark Twain, he developed and changed and worked on and performed for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know anyone else who does anything remotely like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, this is the thing that you um, I, that's how I got to know, right? Because they used to come through D.C. with his because he used to tour with this thing because he came yeah. back and did it years later as well. After, you know, come into prominence and walked away from doing it for a while, he came back to do it again. And I remember watching like TV when I was a kid or a teenager and they would show the commercials for him showing up either to the arena stage or whatever place in D.C. he was going to do it for. And they would show it was a one man show and they would show clips from it. Mark Twain, limited engagement, you know, or, or Hal Holbrook is Mark Twain, blah, blah, blah. And then I was blown away by the fact that Val Kilmer kind of picked up that pipe and started doing his own Mark Twain over the last few years before his before his cancer diagnosis kind of uh, made that uh, near impossibility. So pretty incredible stuff that Mark Twain is, as, as a character, or as, sorry, as a character, but also as a real person, endures in the minds of so many people that two different noted actors were able to create one-man plays about this man. It's certainly how Holbrook doing what he did. Also, Steve, he almost seemed to look the same from, like, Wall Street to freaking into the wild. He doesn't look like he's aged a day. It's like uh, Max von Sydow was born 70, looking 70 years old. It's kind of crazy how Hal Holbrook has endured. And, and you can rarely find extra wrinkles on the man's face. He kept, he looked like he stayed the same weight and he just always consistently worked. And that voice of his was so good when he was vulnerable and charming and caring and warm. 
And then also when he was condescending and snippy and <laughs> villain. So he was so good at playing all the spectrum of roles that you can play uh, as an actor. It, it, it's so fascinating. I think about this guy. He started playing Mark Twain at 20, yeah. then stopped for a little while because he enlisted in the army in 1942. And he served in World War II till 46, yeah. uh, became a st- was a staff sergeant. You know, which is an impressive position. Um, he did his very first like professional version of Mark Twain in '54 mm-hmm. in uh, at the uh, Lock Haven State Teacher College. <laughs> and you want to know who came to see a performance of Mark Twain at the Lock Haven State Teacher College in who? 1954? Who? Ed Sullivan. Oh wow! And Ed Sullivan put him on his show in '56. And then, and so, and this is what's so crazy. He continues to develop the show. He does summer stock. He does some off Broadway Mm. and he does Mark Twain off Broadway. And in 59, Columbia did an LP. They did a record with excerpts of his performance. Then he did it in 64 at the world's fair in New York. And then he, they finally, it doesn't go on Broadway until 66, which is when he wins the Tony goes on TV in 67, which he wins the Emmy. And then he goes back on Broadway in 77. And then it goes back on Broadway again in 2005 when he was 80. So he starts doing this thing when he's 30. Yeah. Does it is still doing it when he's 80 at that point he's older than the character he is playing and as you say he did it all over the country Mm -hmm. he did this show more than 2100 times wow that is more performances as mark twain than samuel clemens had as mark twain (laughs) i mean that's the last time he did it was in 2017 four years ago wow Wow, I mean, I, I, that's insane. It is, it is. And if you want to see, um, um, there are clips on YouTube of the show. So just type in Hal Holbrook, Mark Twain, and there are snippets, you know, eight, seven, eight minute segments that you can see of the show and ad- admire what this man brought to the um, the life of Mark Twain and the sayings and the points of views that he had. An entertaining character, like Will Rogers. You know, Mark yeah. Twain and Will Rogers very much in the same conversation and certainly playing him. Uh, and I wonder if there were, and I'm sure there are, members of the Twain family or the Twain you know, trust or whatever there is who have, uh, who have come to see him and probably had compliments for him the whole time. Or maybe criticism, who knows? Yeah, but yeah. It's slightly off the topic, but do you remember... <laughs> in cheers when yeah. woody played mark twain and then was <laughs> mark twain in like multiple episodes of cheers yes. like he couldn't get out of the character <laughs> uh, yes that's, that was great um and of course you know all sorts of other tv he was in dirty mm-hmm. harry he was in you know he's in he's in the sopranos he's in yeah. sons of anarchy he's in spielberg's lincoln he's in gray's anatomy he was in in 2017 at the age right. of 92 yeah yeah but the film that we're talking about today is, of course, among his most famous in which he plays Deep Throat. By the way, one of the things that Alan Pakula did in casting him is nobody knew who Deep Throat was at the mm-hmm. time. And so he called up uh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and said, listen, you don't have to tell me who Deep Throat is, but I want to cast Hal Holbrook. And I just want to know if I'm in the ballpark, like if it's gold in my ear, <laughs> then we probably shouldn't cast Hal Holbrook. Am I in the right area? And they said, yeah, yeah, that's, that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And he's great. He's great in the film. And those scenes in the parking garage are fantastic. 
you know, and he he carries so much weight just standing still, you know, delivering the lines that he delivers. So, John, mm-hmm. All the President's Men was our 46th episode. It was obviously with... How interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Our 46th president just got uh, inaugurated, and that was our 46th episode, and we are on the precipice of a second impeachment trial for the 45th president. Crazy. Well, and, and this is the thing. It was recorded on April 27th, 2017. So Trump had been president for three months-ish <laughs> when we recorded this episode. Yeah. Since then, we're as you say, we're on our second impeachment. There's been an attack on the Capitol. Yes. There have been... Uh, I mean, one of the things I know we talked about a lot in this episode is journalism. Yep and truth mm-hmm. and opinion masquerading as truth and the value of truth and how highly Woodward and Bernstein value truth mm-hmm. and the sanctity of elections, because that's what the, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, what is the impeachment? What is Watergate about? He's trying to get dirt on the democratic candidate for president in 1972. And what is the first impeachment of Donald Trump about? Yeah. About him trying to get dirt on his democratic competitor in 2020. Yeah, trying to get it from the Ukrainian prime, yeah, Ukrainian president. Yeah, I mean that it just seems like, and, and also this is an important film it. today. That's what I'll say. Absolutely, Stephen. What's the movie about? Also, it's about the disrespect for the office of the presidency by the person holding the pres holding the office. Uh, and so this is here we are again at this situation. Here we are again with the words, except this one. Uh, this uh, former president uh, was shameless, is so shameless that he's not willing to go gently into that good night or softly or to say, you know, you won't have Donald Trump to kick around anymore. He instead, uh, you know, incited a riot and uh, caused all these problems. And now we're here back in the same situation. Uh, and of course, it looks like he's not going to be impeached. But these articles, but the reason why people have... Uh, kept abreast of this stuff is because of what happened with Watergate. This, these articles that were written about the president exploring, exposing the president, that has been the tradition of journalism since then to hold these administrations accountable for the things that they do. Through the Carter administration, into the Iran-Contra affair in the 80s with Reagan, right? Into into the George Bush era with the Gulf War, into Bill Clinton and the uh, sex scandal or the, uh, you know, the scandal with the, with uh, Monica Lewinsky and other things that happened during that time as well. Uh, all the way into George W. Bush and the Halliburton situation and the, the $9 billion that disappeared uh, off the piers there uh, in, I think it was in Iraq or Kuwait. And then into uh, um, uh, into Obama, and then into Trump, and now into Joe Biden. You know, and so this idea that the press has been a friend to the left is—they've uh, gone after everybody, both sides, because that's what sells. You know, you got to find information, and this movie is about exploring what happens when a a president commits an atro- commits a grievous act here, uh, and. Uh, uh, I don't know, almost causes the destruction of uh, of the democracy by trying to essentially rig an election by trying to get information on their opponent. Uh, 
and unnecessarily so, Steve, unnecessarily so uh, in this situation because he was going to win by a landslide anyway. It was just his paranoia, just like Trump's paranoia about Joe Biden. I truly believe, and I don't want to go into too much of a train here, but I truly believe if, if Trump had handled the coronavirus thing situation right off the bat, uh, uh, you know, shutting things down, making sure people blah, 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 he'd have been reelected in a landslide. But because he went about it in a different way, he wasn't. And the press writes about him, and he turned. He took four years to turn the press into the enemy, and that's unfortunate. So that's why this movie is so damn important, and why whistleblowers like Deep Throat that Hal Holbrook plays are incredibly important in the history of our democracy to keep us on track. I, I, there's so many things. I agree with all of that, of course. And there's, so, there's so many things about this, which is one of the things that we've lost that is – really there are a lot there's like truth has been degraded just the idea mm -hmm. that there are facts out there that we can agree upon you know like right now so much of the media certainly there because there is right-wing media and there is yeah. left-wing media is and so much of that is framing truth and yeah. often complete fabrications yeah. to support a, per, a, a particular worldview bob woodward was a republican who voted for richard nixon yeah you know people don't know that yeah the, the, the whole their whole thing was what is the truth right that's it we must find the truth and the fact is is that there was a certain point where enough had been exposed mm -hmm. where the republican leadership the republican senators went to nixon and said you must resign and nixon said okay mm -hmm. now as much as you know I, Nixon is a very mixed bag, in my opinion. There are actually some things he did that I think were great, mm -hmm. and some whole bunch of things I think that weren't great. And certainly his insecurity and his he's kind of a nasty person in a lot of ways. Yeah. But he knew he actually cared enough about the country to say, "Yes, I do have to resign at this point." Yes, Trump has no shame. Like there is no, there is that that just doesn't exist. And we're so detached from the truth. I mean, it's funny. So, so the, the where as we're recording this yesterday, the House published their uh, their charges, the eighty page document of the impeachment, and the Trump uh, legal team uh, published their response. Mm -hmm. And in their response, they basically, you know, Trump what it sounds like because uh trump's previous legal team left and what it sounds like is the reason that he left they left is that trump still wants to argue the point that his election was stolen from him that he won from a landslide mm -hmm. and all these insane conspiracy theories are true mm -hmm. like and there are literally millions of people that believe that yes true despite, uh, because they've been told that yeah right and they've been who's told them that the, their news organizations. Yeah, yeah. Tucker Carlson has told them that. Rush Limbaugh has told them that. The the Newsmax and OAN have told them that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's and of course some of them have started to get sued, and so now they're saying, okay, no, 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 the Dominion <laughs> right. machine thing that's not true. As we saw with Newsmax, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the the like it's it's funny because I haven't listened to this episode in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you and I and Karen, my wife, yeah. Karen Morris is the guest on the show. Yeah. I know, obviously we were concerned and not fans of Donald Trump, right? but we had no idea where the world was going to go in the next three years. Yeah. Four right. years. Yeah. You know, a, a, a lot of very scary things have happened and we're right at a moment in history where I really think we need today's Woodward and Bernstein. Cause you know what I want to know about, yeah. you know, they're the 18 minutes that are erased on the, on the Watergate tapes. Right. I want to know a, 
what led to the lack of security at the Capitol building? Yeah, absolutely. Was the National Guard consciously ordered to stand down because of this? Yeah. And what the fuck was Donald Trump doing from the moment they they went through the the barriers until right. they left? But it won't matter, will it? Even if we find out there's going to be 74 million people who think those are left-leaning uh, articles, left-leaning newspapers, left-leaning media news outlets who are purposely painting our hero as uh, incompetent, as malicious, as some, as a devil, as a demon, uh, instead of you know having the rational conclusion to be like, no, this this guy really fell asleep at the job or wanted this coup to happen so he could be like Caesar riding on the shoulders of these people who are riding and seeing if they got a hold of some of these people in the Senate and in the Capitol to threaten their lives uh, and show the other um, political officials, the other representatives and senators, that they mean business. Um, we just are also on the precipice of hearing from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking about her experience with yeah. Katie Porter and what they endured. And if you are any kind of human being and you can listen to their experiences and you come away cynical about what they're saying, you really need to take a look inside your heart and your soul. Because that kind of stuff, when you are two women who are hearing these loud voices of men screaming, yeah. and yes, one of them was a police officer, but if you are hearing the crowd outside and you know that they are coming to kill you possibly, they were there with nooses, they wanted to hang Mike Pence, they were chanting that, they broke through. Anything could, I mean, they killed a police officer who got in their way, and he wasn't even a political rival to their ideologies. So imagine if they had gotten hold of a representative. It is not something to get over. It is not the boys will be boys. It's not any of that. And that's what is really chilling about that. And I don't want us to go back to, well, let's just forget it happened and move on as a country. No, we have to punish the people who did this to the fullest extent of the law. And I don't see that vibe coming from a certain section of the political landscape and it infuriates me as an American. It really does. So as always, you've said many things. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I kept going like, can I, can I maintain Sorry. the list of things? Sorry. No, no, no. It's no, that was all awesome. The, yeah. so, so I think I'll try to move backwards through this okay. whole thing. Um, the can't we just move on is fucking ridiculous. Yes. Like, that the the law and order party, the tough on crime party, the you have to be tough. We have to that that is the people that says, oh, let's just forget about it. Mm -hmm. No, we don't forget about it. A really important thing happened. And if we and we might find out that it's better than we thought it was. Yeah. And we might find out that it's much, much worse than we thought it was. And yeah. we must investigate it like yes. this is the this is the party that did. I don't know how many hundreds of hours of investigation into Hillary's emails and into Benghazi and Benghazi, and, and, and they and said more people and, died here than in Benghazi. But yes, go ahead. Yeah. And it's like, should we have investigated Benghazi? Absolutely. Should we <laughs> have investigated Hillary's emails? Absolutely. Should we investigate an attack on the Capitol whose intention was to overturn a fair election to yeah. essentially a coup destroy our government? Yeah. Maybe we should investigate that. Like, yeah. That is it. That those statements are ridiculous. And I agree with you. Like, you know, AOC and some of these other people, Nancy Pelosi, 
these people literally have targets on them. You yep. know, now we might say that many of the death threats aren't credible or that people don't really mean it. But if you're them, yeah, we don't know. You know, like and and so now there are people who are charging the Capitol with weapons and there's pipe bombs and they have, you know, zip tie restraints. Yeah, they have every reason to be really, really, really scared. And I agree with you. I watched AOC's statement. Look, I am a professional editor who edits actors. <laughs> that wasn't acting. Nope. That was the truth. That was real emotion. That was how she felt. Yeah. Um, You said when you first started talking like is the truth going to matter yeah. you know so i have two feelings about that the first okay. is yes the truth always matters sure we have to look for it and i'm really scared because you're right mm -hmm. because there, there there are some things that are not refutable that millions and millions of people are refuting yes you know we're we're there is a i, I mean i have all sorts of criticisms of things that that people that share my worldview do yeah. like you know we've had conversations about them for, before i think some of them are not rational i think some of them go too far right. you and i don't agree on all of this stuff yeah. but but there is a level of delusion yeah. that's a whole bunch of smart people have in this country you know like trump lies that's yeah. not a matter of my uh, that's not my opinion yeah. and because if trump says one thing one day and says something completely different the next day he lied. One yeah. of those is a lie. The odds are both of them are lies. Yes. Like that's just, it's just facts. Mm -hmm. Like the, you know, when you have all the polls say Biden is ahead, you have all the research say, look, it's going to take a while to, to count these votes. Yeah. You have the Republican party trying to stop those vote counts because mm -hmm. they know that's what's going to happen. And then after exactly what we said, what all the research said would happen, would happen. And then someone says, Clearly, I won by a landslide yeah. that every single piece of evidence must be wrong and make this clear. That's not freedom of speech. That's when you're the president, you have a responsibility with your rhetoric and your words because you carry more power than Joe or Sheila on the corner spouting her nonsense with a sign or his nonsense with a sign and screaming into a bullhorn. You're the president of the United States. So when you say something is a fact or you say something that you think occurred months before it actually occurs, by the way, uh, and then amp up that rhetoric even more after you lose and legitimately lose, um, you are uh, a lightning rod for inciting violence and you are responsible for that because you misused the bullhorn that you have. It'd be no different than a police officer or a chief of police, rather, going out, wading into a crowd and yelling some things to influence people to react in a certain way. When you see the badge, most of us are trained to believe that person is telling the truth. Not everyone, obviously, who've had terrible experiences with police in the past, but most of us who have not had that terrible of experience with police, we believe if you're wearing a badge, you're telling us the truth. So if you're saying something and you're encouraging us to fight, encouraging us to attack, encouraging us to march, riling us up, you have to take responsibility for what you incur. Like Charles Manson was put in jail. He never plunged one knife into Sharon Tate. He wasn't even there. But yeah. he incited them to kill Sharon Tate. And there's a responsibility there. And unfortunately, 
We have a political landscape where people do not want other people who believe as they do, at least on one side of the aisle, in my opinion, they don't want them to have to take responsibility for the things that they say. As we're recording now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a person who believes in QAnon, believes that there are Jewish space lasers. But no, that part's true. I, 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 as a Jew, (laughs) I should tell you that, yes, I do have a space laser. You sons of bitches. I knew it. (laughs) But like, you know, you talk all the stuff that she's saying, they're all trying to say, well, she said it all before she came into office. That is maybe one of the most lamest and most ridiculous and stupidest things you've ever seen. If you say something dumb on social media, it can cost you your job before you even get, while you're in the interview process. So what's the difference? That's the thing at the end of the day. And so they keep moving the goalposts because their desperate desire to retain political power and political positioning and uh, political, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, ego uh, uh, does not allow them to have common sense. And then with one side of the mouth, they say they're not going to do anything about Marjorie Taylor Greene or they want to slap on the wrist or a stupid nonsensical thing like a censure uh, and then claim that they want unity. And if you come hard on the person, they claim you're the one destroying the unity, which is, of course, utter horseshit. And so in the end, that's what we're that's what will implode the country, uh, in my opinion, is uh, people from both sides of the aisle not understanding that a common sense approach to the world is what needs to come back again. And in the 70s, Republicans and Democrats understood that, which is why when this movie is happened, after this, you know, uh, which is why when the events of this movie happen, it is the Republicans who go to Richard Nixon and go, we're going to impeach you. You got to get out of office to save face. And he did so. But because mm-hmm. we didn't have enough Republicans that did it do- during the Ukrainian, and it looks like it's not going to happen again happen now, yeah. in the second impeachment trial, we are going to bring this man back in four years to run for office. This doddering fool will run again, and God help us all. God help us all, and they will have uh, brought about the destruction of this country as we know it. And that they must take responsibility for. And that's what this movie highlights as well. They're pursuing this because they know it's a threat to the democracy. It is not about clicks and likes and money and status and fame. It is about love for your country and calling out people who are trying to erode the foundation of democracy that built this country and that supposedly makes us exceptional and a shining beacon or a shining light on the hill. So first of all, it occurs to me there's a really good podcast I just listened to, which is mm. uh, what Trump can teach us about con law, about constitutional law. Ooh, and it's by the guy who does 99% Invisible. Mm. And they started the podcast. It's basically just him talking to a law professor. And they started it when Trump got elected and all through the first impeachment, through you know wearing masks, through succession, yeah. through the 25th Amendment, through all that stuff. They've just had essentially a class on well what does the law really say and it's and yeah. it's it, you know yes they don't like trump it does but it's i it's a very like you know this woman calls out no 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 the 25th amendment doesn't work like that we can't do that or whatever mm-hmm. they ju- the most recent episode is all about uh sedition it's all about incitement of violence it's all about impeachment rules mm-hmm. so it it totally goes into this and from what she said what Trump did completely rises to the level because the you know the the classic phrase which I think comes from Justice Brandeis is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right. which is and that that has actually evolved through various Supreme Court cases 
through there was a socialist who was jailed for sedition during World mm. War One, mm. and and basically the idea it literally says like you cannot incite people yep. to try to uh, uh, overthrow the government. I mean, it's really really clear the 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 unity thing is just it's so hypocritical. Yeah, of course, like. It is. But Trump is the hypocrite. Trump is the most ununifying person. It's like yeah. if you, I mean, the list of horrible things he has said and yeah. accused the left of from Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, who you, Hillary Clinton. I mean, this you know the guy started with lock her up. Yeah, you know, yeah. like and so then to say now you guys who have been attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked have to come to us and make yeah. nice. It's like no, 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 no. Yeah. You have to come to us. That's how it works. Yep. And Ocasio-Cortez, uh, sorry, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Alexandria, she said it perfectly. She said, it is a person who attacks you or who sexually assaults you, telling you to get over it or get past it so they can do it to you again as soon as your yeah. guard is down again. And that's what this is. That's exactly what this is. Uh, and you see so many representatives who are still uh, trumpeting or lack of a better term, yeah. uh, peddling the lies of election fraud and election. 62 cases and not one of them, not one of them carried any merit or any weight. Uh, and it's because there's no evidence. You know, even Barr came out and said there's no evidence. So it's well, just, and that's, yeah, all these Trump people, the Trump judges, believe, yeah. Trump attorney general, um, Republican yeah. governors, secretaries of state, all these people said there's no evidence. I mean, it's yeah. just, there's nothing here. There is you nothing know. here, except and, and, a stubborn belief. That yeah. they need to believe this to validate their fear of losing the country, supposedly, to people who don't think like they do. That's all it is. So so obviously we did this to honor Hal Holbrook, who we lost. I won't say tragically because the guy's 95. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice work, Hal. Um, Good job, Hal. Uh, but I'm also glad we're revisiting this podcast. And I tell you what, which uh, I'm actually going to re-listen to it because now I'm kind of curious. Oh, yeah. Where we were in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where we've come since then. Yeah. So uh, uh, without further ado, we are very, very pleased to bring you all the president's men in honor of Hal Holbrook. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes and get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, actor, and host of shows in here in Los Angeles as well. And of course, the host of Outlaw Nation podcast, if you are listening to it, if you've been listening to it by now. Um, and we are welcoming to The Cinephiles a guest who... I think I have mentioned more on this show than any other person. Maybe close to your son. I would yes, say that's right. Rival that's right. To, uh, many because times you mentioned I've your son. talked about I've talked about raising my son. You have talked about this person numerous times. I've talked about how we met. Yes. I've talked about whether or not I would tolerate someone rubbing her feet. 
<laughs> yes, yes. And but and I've also talked about her profession, which is a casting director. Yes. Because we are welcoming today my wife Karen Morris, Karen P. Morris. Yes. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Always have to have the P. <laughs> who? Uh, how long have you been a casting director? How long have you been working in casting? Fourteen years. Wow. Fourteen crazy. years. Yeah, I just looked it up you know, like two days ago. Mm. And what kind of stuff do you cast? Um, I, I say, already knowing the yeah. answer to your question. <laughs> You're so great at this. I, it's amazing to watch <laughs> it's really, you work. It's, this is professional <laughs> podcast hosting, ladies and gentlemen. So, so suave. That's, that's how <laughs> yes. you won me over. Um, basically, mostly television, occasionally films here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like working in TV. It's, a, I think, a really fun medium, especially right now. And, well, and you've worked with a new, uh, bunch of casting directors, right? A whole bunch can of different you, casting can directors. Can you name someone um, that you'd like to talk about? Uh, Richard Hicks and David Rubin, Ronnie Yeskel. Um, Jamie Rudofsky right. who's one of my best friends in the whole wide world and my favorite person to work with right. um, all sorts of great people yeah. so. and what drew you to casting? Well, it was funny. I actually was working in film accounting for about 10 years, mm. and I hated it. Um, and one day I was just bemoaning my fate to a casting director who had come in to ask me for um, some help on filling out a petty cash envelope, and I kind of told her how miserable I was, and she asked me what my background was, and I told her what it was, and she said, you should do what I do. You should be a casting director, and I didn't even know what casting directors did at that point, and her name was Diane Crittenden. She doesn't work in the business anymore, but she was an amazing lady, and uh, so she got me started doing it, and I just started transitioning. Well, and the thing I think that, you know, we talked about casting on this show Mm. before, but the thing I think people don't always understand is is that there are these people out there who are passionate advocates of actors, Mm -hmm. you know, because you come to Hollywood or New York and, you know, there's like a 90 something percent unemployment rate among actors Mm -hmm. and it's very easy to get lost and it's very difficult to get found. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things that you love doing is finding and champion, championing, championing a a new actor is just the best. Because when you find somebody who's got that, that spark, that, that something different, something new that they have that you haven't seen before and you want to just get that out there so more people can see it because it's so difficult in this town Mm. there's so many people trying to do it and so getting the chance to help someone and shepherd them through that is just it's 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 wonderful (laughs) it's the best part of my job honestly right Uh, uh, lynn stallmaster says that in the casting by yeah if if anybody wants to find out more about what casting directors do um the film casting by is an amazing and amazing film and it tells a lot of the details about what it is that we do which most people including myself like i said before i started doing it don't really understand what we do and a lot of people still don't understand what we do and oh my god it's an amazing an amazing film and it tells you sort of the the breakdown from the studio system into the current way that we do things and it shows you all the amazing actors that we probably never would have had become movie stars if these two people hadn't kind of done what they did and it's fought for them and yeah yeah, i mean all these interesting looking not pretty new york based actors who were more broadway type people um Mm -hmm. and they just they just found these people that had these edges to them and these these multifaceted levels and it's just uh it's I, I should watch it on a, like an annual basis because it well, just inspires me every it, time I do. Yeah. And speaking of great casts, the movie we're going to talk about today has a phenomenal cast, and that movie is All the President's Men. Yeah. And uh, I think you first brought up that we should do it. Yes. Because uh, we're looking, you know, and, and w- this is not a political podcast. It is we're, not. There's a podcast where we want to talk about movies. Sure. But, it, but movies talk about the world. Yeah. 
And sometimes there's a movie that just is just, this is the movie we need to talk about right yeah. now. And uh, so, Karen, how did you first come to All the President's Men? You know, it's funny because I, I listened to your show, obviously. I've been thinking about that the last couple of days, and I honestly can't remember when I first saw it. Oh, wow. I, I literally believe that this film has always been in my consciousness. Like, mm. my father was a political guy. He was always into politics. He wanted obsessively to be... Obsessively political. Yeah, obs- yeah. Well, much more in later years obsessively political. But definitely he's always been into that. And he's also always been a bit of a writer. And this movie spoke to him on some deep personal level. And I honestly think it's just... it's It, it was always just... If it was on, it was on in my house. Yeah. Like, it was just one of those things where I don't even know if the first the first time I saw it, it probably wasn't through the whole way. It was probably catching it some way. This is one of those movies that in my childhood, I really don't know when I ever saw it from beginning to end the first time. I just would, yeah. if it was five minutes in, I would start it and I would watch it to the end. If it was five minutes before the end, I would start it and I would watch it to the end. <laughs> if I could only watch 20 minutes in the middle of it, that's what I would do. And it yeah. was just one of those movies that I just watched over and over and over again. And you got, I know you you got kind of obsessed with it and obsessed with it. Oh yeah, obsessed with it. Um, it made me want to be a journalist for a long time. Mm. Um, not something I'm so enamored with these days because I feel like journalism's changed a lot. But um, when I was a kid, it, it definitely made me want to be a journalist. I read John J. Sirica's um, book to, re- to set the record straight, which was all about the Watergate trial. And I was reading a little bit about him last night. Um, and he's just a fascinating guy. I kind of went deep. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to go deep, there are literally dozens of books available from our good friends at Audible, including... <laughs> including All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash thecinephiles with no dash, and you'll get a free book, a 30-day trial membership, and access to their huge library, over 180,000 books of all sorts of genres, not just politics. And as a person who's used Audible for over a decade with a giant library myself, I'm telling you, there is nothing better than having a great book with you everywhere you go. At the gym, sitting in traffic, doing dishes, doing gardening, escaping your life, which is what (laughs) I sort of use it for. I can't, I'm a huge fan of audible.com and you should be too. That's audibletrial.com slash the cinephiles. Go get your free book now. And now that I've finished doing our shameless plug John what about you Uh, well for me uh, I grew up in DC so I became a political junkie it doesn't mean like everybody who grows up in DC is but for me I always had a an affinity for it even as a young child you know so for me this film came into my consciousness probably in my teen years when they like I've talked about on the show many times WDCA 20 or Metro Media 5 in DC would show films in the afternoons on Saturday afternoon Sunday afternoon so when I started to develop a affinity for films I would sit all afternoon and watch films back to back to back you know and so that wow, is that's yeah, awesome that's I mean that's just that was my life for a long time I mean I'd go out and play and play football whatever and I wasn't a shut-in or anything but on Saturdays that was my day to sit and watch TV and I remember stumbling upon this one Sunday I didn't know what it was about I think it was 14 or 15 years old and I was coming into my understanding of film and I was just engrossed in this because it is not a typical film there's not a protagonist antagonist love story this is a straight film from beginning to end documenting what Woodward and Bernstein went through in and their travails their 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 um losses their wins all of it through this whole process and it's an incredible cast you know just incredible cast and the, and the pace of the film never lets up and, so for and me, everything about it is different too i mean like yeah. the, the 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 angles and the way that they shoot things the the long drawn out that they take more liberties right. in in 
taking time with things than more most films have done i believe even yeah. to this day because they had to it was not right. they couldn't tell it traditionally and so it's so fascinating even now to watch it you know over and over again is you, yeah. you, every time you watch it you go oh that's interesting why did they choose to do it that way well that was mm-hmm. making it cinematically interesting something that's kind of more cerebral yeah. and it's and hard to find a way to make that you know, filmic. Right. And I think that's why it stuck with me because it was such an unusual way to do a film yeah. that I yeah. kept coming back to it whenever it would come on. And, you know, just all the actors, Dustin Hoffman, Rod Ruff, like all of them just kind of sucked me in. So for me, that's, and I've watched it numerous times over the years, over and over and over again. And this last time was so powerful because of yeah. what's happening in our current political yeah. climate. So, yeah, for, for me, uh, uh, as the oldest one in the room, I have a vague memory of Watergate. Like, mm-hmm. I have a vague memory of my parents were watching this thing oh. and talking about this thing. You know, I, I'm born in 68, so 74, I'm like six. Mm-hmm. And I, like you, Karen, I don't really remember when I first saw the film, mm-hmm. but I certainly remember maybe in high school watching it again and going, oh, wow. You know, and then as I got more and more interested in both uh, politics and filmmaking, because yeah. uh, I a, was a political science, I have a degree in political science, and... Uh, uh, as well as theater, and uh, and then I went off to film school, and both of those things come together in this amazing yeah. way in this film. And the more that I saw it, the more this film amazes me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how it was made. I don't understand how they, how, how it how, got made. Definitely right. don't understand how, how yeah, it got it's made. Like, it is so unique. And what's what struck me is Karen and I watched it again a, a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. Is for subject matter that seems so dry. It is so compelling. Yes. Right from the beginning. Yeah. You cannot turn away. And you're, what you're watching is a guy taking notes while talking on the phone. Yeah. You know, and, or a guy typing. Right. And you go, well, that's the most boring thing that you well, could possibly Well, but it's funny. We talked film. about this last night because I rewatched it again last night because yeah. I just really wanted to have it fresh in my mind before mm-hmm. today, even though we just watched it a week and a half ago. But honestly, I, Steve came downstairs and caught me at one point and I had to pause it and say, Robert Redford is amazing here yeah. because he's finding these ways. I have no idea if it's accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's accurate. It's beautiful. When he's on the phone at the beginning, just getting into it, yeah. he has this giddiness mm-hmm. whenever someone hangs up on him or whenever someone says something unbelievable. And he's just, he's like a little kid discovering this massive, wonderful thing for the first time. And I, like I said, I have no idea if that's true mm. for what Woodward was feeling when he was going through it. But filmically... As, and as an actor choice, I just love it because yeah. it just makes you love Redford even more. It makes you fall in love with that character that he's playing and really get on his side yeah, and it, want him to succeed and get the story. Yeah, and know? it gives him a level because people make a big deal about the fact that he's only been there nine months. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And so it gives the fact that he's getting hung up on to him is yeah. a badge of honor. Right. Because back then, it used to matter in well, journalism and, and, and to it, And it shows on, like the reason yeah. he is still there after yeah. nine months and the reason he should stay there is yes. because he cares. He's tenacious. He wants to find out right. what the story is. Cool. And he's enjoying the process yeah. as scary and crazy as it yeah. is. <laughs> Well, let's get a little bit of sure. a backstory. So for those of you uh, who are maybe younger listeners and don't much about Watergate, <laughs> I'm going to give you the world's fastest explanation, which, well, I is, that, this. I uh, this. which is that in 1972, Richard Nixon is running for re-election. Yes. There is a break-in to the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate building, which is why anytime there's a scandal now, we call it a Something gate. gate. You know, there's yes. a million different gates. Well, it all comes from this one break-in. And it's, which is in DC, in DC, the Watergate, mm-hmm. Hotel, yeah, DC. the Watergate, very yeah, interesting yeah. looking building, yeah. too. <laughs> and um, there's it's covered a little bit on the national news, and then all the national mm-hmm. news drops it. But these two reporters on the Washington Post 
Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein continue on the story and begin to discover that this robbery is connected to first the committee to reelect the president and that and more little things have been done and that there's a secret slush fund. And the question becomes, well, how high up in our government did knowledge of this go? Yeah. Was it just these ex-CIA guys? Did it go up to important assistance? Did it go all the way to the attorney general until finally, even after Richard Nixon was elected, it is discovered that it goes all the way to the president. And in 1974, Richard Nixon design, resigns. And none of that would have happened probably yeah. without these two very young, unknown reporters at the Washington Post. Tenaciously following a story so, yeah. so this, against the better judgment of most of the people around them. Yeah, yeah. so, so. this is a story that th- these two guys literally change history yeah. for, you know, this is a, it's a huge thing. I won't say what the biggest moment in American politics is, but this is in that list. You know, it's one well, of the most important. One of the funny thing, things I like about it is that think about, like, you know a lot of you know, you, most people have heard of Walter, Conc- Walter Cronkite. Most right. people have heard of journalists that are television journalists. Yeah. How many print journalists can most people name? Not nowadays, probably not many. But I'm sure back in the '70s, you had you had yeah. you, you had print journalists. Yeah. But that's I mean, like to think had, that nowadays you know? a lot of people still know who Woodward and Bernstein right. are. No, absolutely, and it's right. like, yeah, that, that's so, But it's a uncommon. dying breed. It's it a is dying definitely breed. a dying yeah. breed. So strangely enough, none of this happens without Robert Redford. This is, yeah. and it's really interesting with this film is that at the very beginning it says filmed by Alan J. Pakula, yeah. who's the director. That's normal, and Robert Redford. That it is that I can't think of another movie where the film by credit is shared with an actor in this way. Mm. And, and I the, think it was actually Redford's name first. Is, is Redford first? He might you be watched first. it last night. I watched it last night. Mm. I want to say his, his name might be on top of. And that is deserved yeah. because yeah. this movie doesn't. Ha- not only does this movie not happen without Redford, but the whole way this story is thought of is, is doesn't happen. It happens differently without Redford. Redford is working on a film called The Candidate, which is a really interesting film. Good film. And he first starts hearing about this Watergate break-in, and he becomes an obsessive follower of Woodward and Bernstein. He decides he wants to do a movie of it before Nixon resigns. Mm. So this is like '73, yeah. like a year after this happens, and he starts writing to and calling and trying to get in touch with Woodward and Bernstein. Woodward, not surprisingly for his character, has no interest in talking to Redford. <laughs> He's like, why would I talk to Hollywood? You know, we're busy on this story. Yeah. Yeah. He is a business is business guy. Um, and we'll talk more about Woodward as we go. <laughs> but finally, he gets a meeting with them. And at this point, the story has been so big that Burns, Woodward and Bernstein are starting to figure out how we're going to write the book. And with the book that they're going to write is the story of Watergate yeah. of the break-in, in which they are, do not play a part. Right. They're just going to tell the beginning to end. Finally, Redford convinces them to take a meeting with him, and he sits down, and he's the one to convince them to tell their story, yeah. to tell it with them, as, which they were very resistant to. And eventually, he convinces them that the way to tell it is to tell it as a detective mm-hmm. story. And to tell the detective story, you got to have the detectives. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and from that point, he's helping them with the book, <laughs> All the President's Men, while at the same time getting ready to start on the movie, and that's when Nixon resigns. Mm. You know, that's what's so remarkable about it. So Redford deserves so much credit for this. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting, too. I read last night that um, the the whole, because I've never read the actual whole book mm. of, uh, of All the President's Men, but um, apparently the book goes a lot further oh yeah you know and like this this ends you know the movie ends where it does and the book just keeps going for a lot yeah. more because they're working on the book for a long time yeah and so yeah, um, i remember renting it from the library and so that i guess i think it, i read yeah. that it was um goldman's 
decision to stop to it, it to end it, to mm-hmm. end it where it does, and mm-hmm. that that was a key thing to making the movie work. Well, this is important too. What Rob, what Redford does here, because by doing it through their eyes, we can connect exactly. to people and connect to them and understand what they're going through in trying to break this story. And so it makes the most sense to make it that way because we as human beings love a good detective story. It's yeah. what drives us. It's why Law & Order has 75 seasons. It's why <laughs> these these procedurals will always be around as long as TV or any form of media is available. Procedurals, just people love to feel like they can figure stuff out. Like it's, it's just a thing for well, them. And it humanizes. Yes. The 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 horribleness of what's happening in mm-hmm. Watergate. Absolutely. Like I mean, this mm-hmm. this terrible thing that ripped apart the nation yeah. is you know it, it humanizes it. It makes you see all the the little people involved right. and how every one of them was affected in a in a some 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 of them in a cataclysmic way. You yeah. know, and in some of them in a very minor way. And it's just well. And, and you mentioned William Goldman. Uh, William Goldman's the screenwriter. Yeah. Um, and. He, this is one of the great screenwriters of all time. Indeed. Uh, I have a story for him when you're done. <laughs> okay, good. Yes. Um, uh, so Redford first uh, got to know William Goldman because he wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm-hmm. Kid. Oh, that's he right. He also wrote The Princess Bride and Marathon Man and all sorts of great stuff. He also wrote one of the great books on Hollywood, which is Adventures in the Screen Trade. So right. for all of you screenwriters and filmmakers out there, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and so I want to hear what your story is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want one, one quick thing that Woodward and Bernstein, it makes sense that they wouldn't want to put themselves in the story because the reporters back then didn't make, them, didn't make their stories right. about it themselves. It was not right? about them. Right. Nowadays, like ESPN, when it first started, the reporters did not make the stories about themselves. Now it's all about their reaction to everything. It's so, at, at times, it can be so irritating for me. But... I used to temp at the Writers Guild, oh. and so uh, for about four years, I would temp off and on at the Writers Guild, and it would that kind of supplemented my acting income uh, when I first got to LA, and it was a great experience. I loved working at the Writers Guild; nice people, good people, it was fun. But I worked for a particular department, uh, and I was tasked with signing, with sending this letter to William Goldman, and I was given <laughs> the wrong information. And it removed his credit from... Now, at this point, I'm not that oh familiar with, with, with William Goldman. He sends the most scathing letter to destroy me about, like, the, who is this kid that sends me this letter and tells me this, I wrote blah, 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 you need to... And, and the department head, to, his, to her credit, came up to me and she said, what were you told? And I showed her the emails and she goes, okay, clearly it was a miscommunication. Don't worry about it. Because I was like, oh my God. Everyone's like, William Goldman, don't send him anything anymore. You, you're, He's going to get so, he's going to sue us. Blah, blah, blah. There was wow. a whole thing. And I was like, completely like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Once I saw his credits, I was like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. You know, I should have double, triple checked this whole thing. But I was just trying to make my money. You're just, you know? you're, you're yeah. a temp. Yeah. A temp should not be said. It's like, hey, temp. Right to Francis exactly. Ford Coppola, you know, <laughs> You're right. But I guess they figured because I didn't there. make the Godfather. Yeah, exactly, he didn't write the Godfather. But it was a, his, and it was a very eloquent destruction. So I'm I would sure. say he's a fantastic writer. Oh, no question. Well, and, and, and on regular please discourse. tell me you still have this letter somewhere. <laughs> Are you kidding? I no, of course not. I, it scared the shit out of me you so must, much. I got you rid must of it. find this letter would, and would, show it to I me. I would have kept it. I would have kept I'm it. I'm sure he does. I'm <laughs> sure he does. Well, William, if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> and you want to, just, you can visit us on Facebook and post the letter. Anyone who works at the Writers Guild um, who wants to help us track down please. this piece of paper. So, so uh, obviously, screenwriting is a very difficult job. Yeah, and one of oh, the yeah. things. Uh, I sort of wish, particularly with this screenplay, like, you know, when you're watching like Olympic diving or something, they discuss the difficulty of the dive. Yes. And then the score is based on the difficulty. This is the most, I can't conceive of how difficult this screenplay is to write. Yeah. Because this is a screenplay that is essentially all exposition. 
And exposition is like, here's the information the audience needs to know. Well, that's the whole movie. Yeah. It's just a long, long list of exposition and a lot of people typing and making phone calls. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how to make that dramatic is so hard. And, and, and one interesting thing about it, so it's Redford. Goldman, Woodward, and Bernstein, they're all sitting in, in Woodward's apartment or Bernstein's mm-hmm. apartment or Redford's apartment or, you know, all working, trying to bang this thing out, trying to figure it out. And Goldman, I think in Adventures of the Screen, tell, tells a story of Bernstein's girlfriend who just kept throwing in her opinion. <laughs> and he kept going, well, who is this, who is this I know, girlfriend? I know where this is going and it's really and awesome. Why, why, you know, who let her in? Right. And of course, Bernstein's girlfriend, who later became his wife, is Nora Ephron. Oh, wow. Yeah. How so, funny. so Nora Ephron is sitting while they're trying to write... <laughs> All the presidents. Men. She can't. She can't control herself. She's got to throw in her two cents, which is awesome. And, not, and, and, not, and once you hear that story, it's kind of like, man, I wonder what Nora's a great writer. Yeah. Like, well, appara- apparently, apparently, she and Carl did some drafts along the way. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, wow, there was, they did cool. some drafts along the way, and then <laughs> I forget some of the horrible things that were said and the stuff that I was reading about it. But yeah, there's. <laughs> he's not that great. At, he's not that cool of a guy. Goldman's a bit Goldman? of a old he's, man. He's got a lot of personality. He really does. Yeah. Yeah, I think he had some scathing things to say about uh, Nora and what else Carl's uh, attempts. Yeah. yeah. And originally Redford, he didn't, he wasn't going to be in it. Really? Yeah. He likes to do this. Yeah. That's the thing about Robert Redford. He's an ingenue, he's a character actor in an ingenue's body. And as much, and but he likes yeah, to he, play both sides. It's true. It's right? true. He likes to play both sides. Like we were talking about on uh, um, what we just did. The, what was oh, this? The Graduate. On The Graduate. Well, yeah. Well, he was supposed to be, right? Wasn't he? Right. He was, he was supposed to be Benjamin Bratton. Yeah. He talks, but Steve mentioned the story where he talks about the fact that the, the director came to him and, and Mike Nichols came to him and was like, uh, have you ever failed getting a woman? And he's like, I don't know what that means. And, and that, 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 that lets you, so he can play the ingenue when he wants to, but inside he's a character actor. And I admire these people. Clooney's like this. Yeah. I admire these people yeah. that don't just rely on their looks. They're driven by their brains as well. And he is one of these guys that could have easily sat back and just made all this money and been a, a successful Lothario, but he wants more. And Clooney's the same way. And I love this. Well, and, yeah, and not did, surpri- didn't, we, didn't we watch in one of the docs that it was, um, that they almost, they basically said it's, it's not going to happen right. unless yeah. you play Woodward. And so, Oh. At that point, you know, he's so passionate about it, he's going to make it happen, which I can't imagine anyone else anyone yeah. else yeah. playing it. And honestly, he, he looks pretty close to the part, too. Ish. So, I mean, you know, close <laughs> enough. I mean, sure. obviously, Robert Redford is, Redford is a, a really mean, attractive I'm not man. talking I'm not gonna... smack about Bob Woodward's looks. <laughs> But he 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 he's, he's no Robert. But if you put Bob Woodward and Bob Redford on the runway, <laughs> you know, like Redford's the worst wingman you've ever not, had. It's, yeah, not, know, it's right? not too much of a leap of faith to say that he can um, play right, that right. role. It's funny that you bring up Clooney because they're both directors. Yes, you know, right. is that and this is the thing with Redford. And we, I know we talked about when we talked about the Natural. Yeah, is his acting. He doesn't do a lot. He's not a flamboyant actor. You know, he's not like making these big things. But you can always see the wheels turning. The intelligence and the thought process with uh, with Robert Redford is so clear, and that's so key to this movie. Um, so let's get into it. Yeah, let's start. <laughs> let's do it. The mo- the movie starts with. Uh, Nixon returning from China. Yes. And and this is the this use of news footage throughout the film and it's always sort of kind of on a TV and in the distance and 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 it's used really beautifully. Except in the very beginning it is the actual Yeah, it's a full screen. The full screen. Yeah. And um uh and what's really important about this is this is Nixon at his peak. Yes. Oh, this yeah. is him triumphant. And simultaneous to that is we go immediately into the burglary. Yeah. Which is dark and thrilling and mm-hmm. tense, unsettling. Unsettling? Yeah. Yeah. And there's this one moment to me that's really remarkable, which is that 
the security guard finds the tape on the door. Yeah. Did you know that the guy who plays the security guard, I believe, is the actual guy who found no. the tape? I, I read I that didn't. last wow. night as well. Oh, wow. That's, That's crazy. I'm pretty sure. So well, it's that, not that far out, right? Yeah. 1976 no, is when making, this film was yeah, made in. Yeah. I mean, this is real. That's one thing we, we shouldn't, didn't mention. It's yeah. like making a story about a true story right after it's happened. I mean, the country's literally yeah. reeling from yeah. this. They're still, yeah, the country's still, you know, in yeah. pain. Yeah. So this guy, it just, I think about that guy finding that tape. Mm-hmm. Because just as Woodward and Bernstein trade the, changed the world, so that guy. Yep. It's all in the you small know? things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a call goes out to the police, and some kind of off-duty detectives come over, <laughs> one of whom is F. Murray Abraham. F. Yes. Murray Abraham, yes. our yes. favorite. This was so yeah. great. <laughs> and, and one of the bank robbers is Dominic Cayanesi, who is Uncle Junior in The Sopranos. Oh. He's the one that plays the Latino guy. Oh, yeah. Wow. When they say his name, yeah. This is what the mind fuck is about this situation, right? Because Nixon had survived the post the Vietnam stuff, the the movements, the he had all this kind of things that had happened to him during his first term, right? During the 4 years of his first term and because of what he'd done with China, and the stuff with Russia, like he was reestablishing himself. He gave voice to the silent majority, quote unquote, which is what he used to defend himself. Yeah. And then he does this incredible Stupid, unnecessary break-in because of his paranoia. He destroyed McGovern. It was so unnecessary. It was overkill. But he did this because he was so paranoid about wanting to be accepted by as a legitimate political president. And unfortunately, it completely scorched him to death, like his legacy to death. The more the more I learn about presidents, and I, you know, like right now in the middle of these giant five book tome on Lyndon Johnson. Oh, oh, are you reading those? I'm almost done with them. God, those are amazing. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. And the more I learn, it's like, oh, all these people are human. Like, Mm -hmm. they're all complicated and difficult and flawed. That's why they're all full of gray hairs when they get out of there because it's it's such an incredibly difficult job. Yeah. Uh, Although, although, honestly, I'm getting a lot of gray hairs just like... (laughs) Well, sitting through or, Trump, I get gray hairs too. Well, and I, th- I think Nixon gave himself extra gray hairs yes. with his, a with his paranoia, a paranoia yeah. psychosis. So after the break in, we go to the Washington Post. Yes. And we meet some of our guys working there, like Jack Warden and Martin Balsam. Yeah. Uh, and these are guys we talked about in 12 Angry Men. Yeah. I mean, this so is good. great casting. So good. Great old Hollywood actors, character actors to really establish and put an anchor in the film. Yeah. Because people forget Hoffman and, and uh, Redford were still just starting out as actors, still just starting out as, as established names. And so these guys, there was great. It's what you do. You, you got your stars. You've got your role players. Those guys are role players that really elevate the movie. Yeah. And they're, they're just all so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, they're faces are wonderful their their voices their their gruffness i mean they 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 feel like they belong in that in in that newsroom they they really bring some gravitas and and um uh honesty and 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 sort of truth to what they're trying to portray so so and let's talk about this newsroom real briefly for years i just assumed they shot at the washington post (laughs) because it was so real they wouldn't let them they wouldn't let them because the post is going 24 hours right and so what do they do they, the George P. Jenkins, who's the, the set designer, mm-hmm. itemized every single item in the whole place, and they rebuilt the entire took, newsroom. Took trash from the actual post, <laughs> I believe, yeah, and bought the desks from the same place that wow. they had bought the desks from, and painstakingly recreated the whole thing. I think it was about two hundred thousand dollars to create that one wow. set. And, on. they, and they, there was no stage big enough, so they actually broke through between the wall between two stages mm-hmm. to build a set big enough. To be the entire Washington and Post. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad they did because all those scenes in the post are just yeah. 
the running and the and the the long shots and the, there's so much good stuff to help the movement yeah. on what we've said is a not very moving yeah. story it's it, a it's a very expositional story so being able to see these moments of them running here or looking there or talking across to this person or the you know the the rack focuses between redford and 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 uh hoffman's desks and i mean there's just great stuff that's happening yeah in that those newsrooms the look the same even up until like man of steel recently <laughs> right. they all look the same so yeah yeah um and 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 the you know getting that reality is so important yeah. for this film mm-hmm. like they you know just as woodward and bernstein care so much about the truth Redford and Pakula and this team cares about we have to get this right. Yeah. This is important. When you make a Superman movie, yeah. you know, it, it's not real events, it's not real people. No, no. Although there is actually a lot of pressure to get it right in <laughs> yeah. those as well. So uh, our young uh, reporter, Bob Woodward, goes down to this court where the uh, uh, the, the, the guys who broke in are being arraigned. The five yeah. burglars. And there's this strange man sitting there. <laughs> yeah, this is a great, these are great scenes. Excuse me, what is your name? I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Markham. Markham. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. This lawyer is just sitting there. Right. Guy sitting in an immaculate light blue three piece suit. Yeah. One of the great character actors that I forget that actor's name, but I've seen him in a million, million things. things. Yeah. And and they have they call this him incre- a country club lawyer. Yeah, He's very much a country club lawyer. Yeah. And they have this great exchange, and he just great lawyer double speak all the way through to it, the end. It is end one of sequence. my favorite scenes in the movie, and it, <laughs> it it does not. I mean, like it's so unimportant, but that right. the that, the chemistry between those two actors are great. Why are you here? I'm not here. <laughs> Well, clearly I am here, but only as an individual, not as the attorney of record. Who is? Mr. Starkey. Do you have any... Whatever you want, you'll have to get from him. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> and then he follows him over to the water fountain later. I mean, it's, it's so good. But it establishes what we're going to see in the film. It's a great... These are great sequences, but they establish we're going to see the dogged determination of Woodward, which is Robert Redford's character, and we're going to see people constantly trying to convince him not to do it, convince him that it's not happening, convince him to let it go. And this is the whole film, yep. you know? But so things it's, keep it's happening this way. Th- that yes. make Woodward go, wait, what? Yes. They say, and what was your previous employer? CIA. What? Central <laughs> Intelligence Agency. And you see, and Woodward write, writes down on the notepad. Yeah. There, there's C-I-A. a moment of like his eyes popping and then him yeah. writing something down in his notepad. Right. And we go, oh, what's this about? Hmm. And this is something we're going to see over and over in the film. We go back to the Washington Post uh, and we're just starting on the story. Woodward's on it. Bernstein wants to get on it. Um, and Bernstein, he's always jumping ahead. This is one of the things we're going to see, a <laughs> dynamic between the two characters, yeah. is that Woodward is to some degree plotting. He's like, we must know and, everything. And, which is necessary in journalism, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, it's that's why I think he's necessary for this for this story to have happened. Yeah. Well, and if you read any... I've read a couple of his books, and if you read any of his books or you see the, him interviewed, he is, and I mean this lovingly, like one of the most boring people in the world. <laughs> he's, and he can be cantankerous as well. I've yeah. seen him on, on the CNN and other things interviewed at times, and it's like, you know... He's just like, this is the truth right and if someone tries to get him to say something that he doesn't know he's like i can't comment on that yeah i know nothing well there, there's several you times know? in the movie where they do the thing of like well if you woke up in the morning and there's snow on the ground then you can deduce that it snowed last night <laughs> right. which is which i guess is true but then there's another one where he's like well if a guy asks me for direct you know for an address is he you know is he 
stalking me or is he lost? Right. You know, I mean, like there's, well, and there's, this is, there's this, definitely, it's all about perception and yeah. Woodward's perception is very, very specifically his and Bernstein's is well, very And this is what's his. so important about this film and why I think all of us wanted to talk about right, right now is this is a movie about finding the truth. Yeah. What is the truth? What can we really know yeah. for certain? And we need a lot of finding the truth right now because yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Um, and this is the difference. This is, establishes the difference between both of them, right? What you said, Steve, Woodward is about what is the truth. Bernstein is about how do I make the truth interesting to read, right? right. Well, and so and they, where they can I jump to next? What, yeah. Yeah. what, what can, can I, I, I do, What can I deduce exactly. from the exactly. little bit of truth I have? Right. And that's a great combination. Yeah. You need to have those two people. I yeah, think. that's why they're such a great team yeah. is that they really complement and pull each other exactly back well. and restrict and influence exactly right? it's well and it's great casting with yeah. redford who is the the star the the more like you know controlled mm-hmm. thoughtful guy and and dustin hoffman who is the mm-hmm. big character actor guy mm-hmm. and and hoffman when he, he was every day at the post for two or three months before this movie of course of he course. was <laughs> um and i think they both did too i think Red, i think redford was there for well, some there's of it no too. question that redford's not uh, that Redford does his homework. Right. Yeah. The guy is well prepared. He's influenced the book. Yeah. Um, but you could see Bernstein constantly wanting to leap ahead and that dynamic is really exciting yeah. to watch. And and it's interesting too, like Woodward and Bernstein, they didn't particularly like each other. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. They're, but they, but they did some of the greatest work in the history of journalism yeah. together. Honestly, it's probably better that they didn't really like each other because they yeah. probably gave each other a harder time and about this stuff because they were not mincing words listen Matt Nost and I don't always get along on the top 10 <laughs> show but we work really really well together yeah. when, the, when the mic's turned on so you know it's just how it works sometimes you find the right people that you vibe with and, and you can create some great stuff and they really did and it's no surprise because Woodward is like no we need to understand <laughs> the steps to this and Bercy's like no we need to go you, Bert, it's Bercy's like, we know it's so and so he's like yeah, yeah. we think it's so and so exactly no we know it's no we think uh, Woodward starts making his first phone calls he's calling the White House yeah. and, and we're tr- starting to find hear about this name Howard Hunt and does the does Mr. Hunt know about this Watergate break-in and is there a connection and here's the name of, of uh, Charles Colson and then he goes to Jack Warden and says oh, who is Charles Colson this is, this is just <laughs> such a great scene who's Charles Colson sit down you know I'm glad you asked me that question the reason I'm glad you asked me is because if you had asked Simons or Bradley they would have said you know we're going to have to fire this schmuck at once because he's so dumb oh who is Charles Colson the most powerful man in the United States is President Nixon. You've heard of him. Charles Colson is special counsel to the president. There's a cartoon on his wall. The caption reads, when you got him by the balls, our hearts and minds will follow. Jack Warden's such a great actor. Yeah. And I love the moment of, I'm so glad you asked me that. <laughs> um, and the great thing about it, uh, the great thing about this moment is twofold. One is it's just a great moment on yes. film. It's entertaining. It's awesome. The other thing is this is brilliant exposition mm-hmm. because what they're really doing, whether Woodward did or didn't know Colson is, is immaterial. They need the audience to know who Colson yeah, exactly. is. Well, and, and then they take it even further because in another scene, just like one or two later, he then chooses to say, well, we're talking about Colson. 
the special counsel. And right, so, exactly. so, he, so he then chooses to then educate yeah. the, uh, the rest of the room, who probably obviously already, already, already know, yeah. but yeah. he's choosing to, just in case, let yeah. me show you the knowledge that I have, which right. it, it's just a lovely piece of well, you know, exposition. And yeah. we also start to see just the, you know, the taking careful notes, drawing little doodles, and, and, and for whatever reason, and this is where, if you haven't seen this film and you've heard us talk about taking notes and sitting, you're thinking this movie is slow. Yeah. It ain't. No. It is so compelling and involving as this mystery is unraveling. Uh, it's it's really quite brilliant, and and you're hearing different voices, different mm-hmm. phone calls. Mm-hmm. It's all put together really beautifully. Um, and by, by the way, as an OCD person, their note taking makes me crazy. <laughs> like I don't even like how yeah. he's writing on the same phone conversation twenty different places yeah. on the page. How does he remember? What came from what thing? Like, yeah. I, it, it, it made me crazy. And particularly like, when these are important and they, yeah. they reference over and over again, like, yes, I have that in my notes. Yeah. Therefore, it's proof. Yeah, this, this is like... <laughs> it's right between the doodle of the, of the house. <laughs> and the guy and, in the, the dark sunglasses. Yeah. yeah. yeah but that's how a mind works sometimes, right? <laughs> Connective tissues to words, like maybe the house connects to something. That's sure. Like, it's, it's interesting. Um, so uh, Woodward goes and reports to the editors. Yes. Um, and, and one of these cool things is, is that, you know, little tiny clues that stick out like the CIA thing stuck out mm-hmm. or this time they volunteered that Hunt was innocent but he hadn't asked them that question yet that was great yeah, yeah. that's a great right? scene then a PR guy said this weird thing to me. he said I'm convinced that neither Mr. Colson or anyone else at the White House had any knowledge of or participation in this deplorable incident at the Democratic National Committee isn't that what you expect them to say absolutely so I never asked about Watergate I simply asked what were Hunt's duties at the White House. They volunteered he was innocent, but nobody asked if he was guilty. And that's the first like moment where you're like, oh. That's By right. the way, Jack Warden, if we ever do the verdict on this oh, podcast, yeah. I want that's my favorite film of his. Jack Warden is one of these guys that lets you know the joy of a it's character. It's not so actor. fine. <laughs> nice reference, <laughs> my friend. Wow, uh, I forgot that movie even existed. <laughs> Jack Warden is so great because he's one of these actors that no matter what he's doing, you believe every second of screen time that he's on. There is nothing but truth in his work. And in this, I love the outfit they put him in. I love the the, the way he delivers his lines, the matter of factness. And it's such a and when he goes against Balsam, he says like, "Remember when we were hungry? Yeah. Remember when we, we could like you gotta you gotta create space here." He's and such a working man's like right. advocate. It's just everything about him. Is right, just... and Balsam always does a great job of conveying a little bit more intelligent than the people around him, but yet subject to his own proclivities. Right, we see him. We see that in Psycho. We see that in numerous right. films. In right. Twelve Angry Men, we see that in numerous films where Balsam is there and does this kind of stuff. So they're a great in their own way. They're a great team, like Woodward and Bernstein bounce off each other until yeah. Ben Bradley shows up. Well, and this goes back to what we talked about, you know, with casting is that it's not just I need to find a great actor yeah. and if I find a great actor, I can fit them in the role. It's finding the right person. Exactly. Yeah, you it's, know? it's the, the chemistry between and among actors and with the directors. Mm-hmm. and It's just yeah. something magical. And one of the things that starts happening in this editorial meeting is now we started to go, oh, maybe there's a story here. Yeah. Why would would we put Woodward yeah. Bernstein on this I story? Put the rookies on the story, right? Yeah, let's put let's get some pros on this. Yeah. and this is as you say, Jack Warden is their advocate. He's like their fight, they're fighters. Yeah, they're going after it, mm-hmm. um, and they're not quite working together yet. No, they're, they're Bernstein. Wa- Woodward's on the story. Bernstein wants on the story, and and you know Carl Bernstein's a guy. Whereas Woodward started on the paper nine months ago. 
Bernstein spent his whole life essentially in yeah. newspapers, yeah. from being a kid delivering papers to being an assistant. But he has been wow. around. Yeah, papers. he's like I've, I've been on this since I was sixteen. You know? yeah. yeah, I mean he's been working it and not getting anywhere. Yeah, you know, and just getting these. He knows he knows the ropes, mm-hmm. but he hasn't had that chance yet. And he wants on this story. And I think what's great about Hoffman's performance in this whole film is, yeah, he's got his overt aggressive moments, and that's later, like that scene where he's running in the dark to the car with Robert Redford, which is so unnecessary, but. Right. You know Hoffman wanted to do that because he wanted to show how great he is in act. But there's this, he's sitting on this aggression, like this desire to do things. And even when he's sitting there leaning against the desk with his big floppy hair, he has this, you can feel his desire to want to jump in and want to yeah. be a part of it and want to be. So it's so it's so great because it's a great juxtaposition to Robert, to Redford's calmness as Woodward. So I love the back end. And I love what he's doing as an actor in this whole film. He just, he's sitting on this desire to push. Well, and it's, you know. We had to say, like, having we literally just talked about the graduate yesterday. Yeah, yeah we did. In terms of when we're recording this. Yep. And to look at Hoffman in the right. graduate and Hoffman in this film. Yeah, nine years later, yeah. They are totally different. Yeah, the, very I mean, this different. is to see what kind of an actor this guy mm-hmm. is. He is an unbelievable actor. The moment when Bernstein rewrites Woodward's stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like he is grabbing Woodward's things and punching it up. Right? Yep. And when you see this. Woodward is like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are you? And he and he tests him. Like, it's almost like he's tra- Like, he's letting a little bit of like uh, uh, food on the ground to catch the animal in the trap. Right? He p- go p- drop something else off and see what he does. And then finally he confronts him. Like, what are you doing? I'm just helping. It's a little fuzzy. Yeah, have it. I don't think you're saying what you mean. I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it? Please? Some of the conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours. Yeah, read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. The first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's going to understand. You don't mention Colson's name to the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He's a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Yours is better. It's so key to the characters yeah. is that Bernstein teaches Woodward something about writing mm-hmm. and Woodward accepts it. Is willing to learn. Yes. yes. Well, and it's also interesting too because Woodward is almost testing Bernstein mm-hmm. early yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Like he puts the page down and doesn't know anything's happening and then right. he sees something and he's like, what just happened here? And yeah. so he puts another page down and he starts to watch more closely. Like he's mm-hmm. doing investigative journalism so thing, on yeah. his, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's being, he's being Woodward. Point, Karen, yeah. He's doing Woodward, you know, <laughs> and then of course Bernstein does Bernstein. And right. so it's so great because that's like a, a perfect encapsulation of their two yeah. characters and, in and, that one scene. You know, we have to know like Woodward is a Midwestern, uh, wasp, conservative, mm-hmm. Republican. Republican. I love, I love when he admits that he's voted, a Republican and when Bernstein's who, face. This guy like, voted what? for Nixon, and Bernstein yeah. is a liberal, radical, <laughs> right. you know, Jewish city guy. They're just completely <laughs> yeah. different in, right. in their their methods and their way of working. They're just really, really different yeah. people. Um, and now, finally, the team. We got our team, yeah. and they're really going to work together. And one of the first things we see is Bernstein sort of charming this. He's having lunch on this rooftop in, oh, yeah. in D.C. and kind of charming her. And we see that, yeah. oh, this is the guy with the personality. Yes. Which Woodward doesn't really have so much. <laughs> and that he- but, Woodward, ironic. but Woodward has a different kind of personality, which comes out later in a couple right. of the other scenes with the, with the women that, I, that I'll, how, we'll talk about when we get there. But so. how ironic that it's 
Hoffman who has a personality. I know, Redford, right? Isn't Redford, it great? But then Redford doesn't need to, does he? He doesn't have to woo. He just is, right? Where Bernstein, it's great the way he does that. And it's a great back and forth uh, between him and the actress in that scene because oh, yeah. he's trying to get to a certain thing and he's got to massage her a little bit to get the information. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that is so, because this is a mystery. Yeah. And one of the things that you have to understand about a mystery is that mysteries are based on clues. Yeah. And that each clue leads you to the next piece of information. If that clue isn't clear, the movie stops. Yeah. And and that's definitely how this follows because that is the woman who says, oh, they were obsessed with the Kennedys. They're checking out all these books on the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. This idea of checking on books, that leads them to the library. Right. The first thing they do is they call the White House librarian. And then this is one of those moments because she says one thing. And, and then immediately changes. But what's more important is that somebody got to her in that space of five. Because she said that Hunt gave, had a lot. There was a lot of books that Hunt what? checked out. And then she comes back and says, "I don't even know Woodward." Mr. Woodward, Ken Clausen calling back. I've just talked with the librarian. Yes, sir. And she denies that the conversation with Mr. Bernstein ever took place. And she. I'm sorry. She referred. Excuse him to me, sir. I'm sorry. You say she denies even knowing about the conversation taking place. That's right. Uh, she said someone did call her asking about Mr. Hunt, but all she did was refer him to the press office, and she denies that any other total bullshit. And listen, you, I don't, I don't, Steve. I will take the hit on this. I don't give a fuck. This is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. What we see, the doublespeak going on about this Russia situation with Trump. We see it. Flynn just accepted money. They just found that out. Like, this stuff is happening right fucking now. And people need to understand that it's happening now. Watch this movie and see. The, open your mind, no matter how you feel or which way you voted. Open your mind and see. Redford is a Republican, but he knows he seeks the truth because it's our country is at stake. And that's what I, That's why this movie, it's still in those moments, had res, it just resonated with me even more powerfully this time around watching it because I'm actually seeing it happen on my TV screens all over again. Well, yeah. and what I'd say is regardless of your politics, you should be interested in the truth. Yes. Is, Absolutely. Is that whatever that is and the truth. And one of the things that we see in this movie, you find the only way to find out the truth is slowly. Yes. And carefully. Methodically. Yes. Methodically. Which, which comes up later in the conversation with Deep Throat. But yes. Yeah. Well, and it's also fascinating because if you think about it, I mean, at least prior to the current recent you know, things yeah. that have happened in our political climate, um, Watergate has yeah. always been like the biggest yeah. political thing that has ever happened, at least in my, mm-hmm. you know, awareness, it seems like that was always, if you, if you were going to bring up the biggest political scandal, yeah. it was going to be Watergate. Because it led to the resignation know? of a and president. And now Watergate looks like child's play compared to the things yeah. that we're looking at happening right yeah. now. It's, it's, I mean, watching it again, it just makes you go, these are the things that brought down a president. Yeah, one These are it? the things that literally ended Nixon's presidency. Yeah. And how is this not happening right now? It's how a pet, are we... It's a petty human frailty versus something that threatens our existence as a country. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are the two differences. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> okay, um, let's move on. So, so as I said, I'll take the hit. Steve is safe here. Steve is great. I'll take the hit. No, I, no you I, can I, yell I, at me. But when we get to the end of this podcast, I have some stuff I'm going to say too. Awesome. So... Uh, so, so the librarian leads us to the library. Yes. And we go to the Library of Congress, and this shot is so important in the film and so iconic, mm-hmm. which is they're sitting there going through the card catalog one by one, 
and the camera pulls up and up and yeah, up. The God's and up. And yeah. everything about that scene. I mean, the foley on that scene yeah. is amazing. Like the sounds of the cards. Because I remember going back right? and We're forth. We're old enough to remember like, looking the, for the, things the, in oh, yeah. the, the, the cinematography. They, there are some dissolves, I think. Yeah, you know, they wanted they, to do it all as but, one move, but they couldn't. But they I mean, it's just, I mean, everything about And it's like there's nothing happening in the shot. There's literally nothing happening except them going through the cards. And it is one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. And every time I think of the movie, that is one of the the clearest visuals that pops into yeah. my head is that that the circles upon the circles upon the circles and the pullback and it's just it's just yeah. and the, oh and I think I'm not positive is that the first place that music comes in yeah I think it's the first oh, music wow. cue it's the okay. first yeah. music cue which is perfect yeah. because it it's using it to sort of evoke the time mm-hmm. spent and give you some of the feelings about oh what are we getting into right. here and it's just it, the music is so good in that moment and well, it's just yeah it's great yeah. and it also shows you the conspiracy you can only you can only go so deep right that that you can't have everybody on your side in a conspiracy they went just a few levels lower than the library and they found this guy who's like yeah. you want everything okay i'll you may not want it but i'll give it I to you it, yeah. right i got it i'll give it to you and that's what happens they're not thinking further all the way down and it's the really hard to keep a big secret I'm just, yeah, yeah exactly. and the sad thing about that is you really want them to find a car yeah and they don't find they don't, anything right. you're like you you found the mother load but oh nothing's there <laughs> why you said damn it you don't want to look <laughs> but th- but this is what's so important about this shot is yeah. that is that, you know, and I, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but with a lot of my students, they're so excited to do the cool shot. And the reason they want to do a cool shot is because they want to do a cool shot. Right. And what they don't understand is that a shot like this or going into the Copacabana or Goodfellas or, uh, or the opening of Touch of Evil or whatever it is, those shots are specifically chosen not just because they're cool, although they are, yeah. but because they tell the story. Yeah, they've got to be and motivated. this shot is a needle in a haystack. Yeah. This shot says... The boring, plodding, meticulous nature of the work, yeah. the hopelessness of it, the discipline of it, the time-consumingness of it. That's what this shot's about. It is an be- amazing shot. Right. But what's really amazing about it is how it tells the story. Yeah, yep. the, the conveying of what, what it's all about. Yeah. I love how so many people get into those kinds of uh, things, reporter or cop or detective and or ER, and they're like... It's not how it is on TV. <laughs> they, exactly. they make a real, real cool yeah. point. You don't solve cases in like two weeks. You know, it really takes a long time. And so, you know, people get like into this line of work and they're like, oh, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Well, this is one of and the challenges of this, this film that's so amazing is yeah. how do I show you how boring and hard yeah. this work is and make it not boring? <laughs> and right? not you know? bore you while I'm doing and it. And this yeah. movie's amazing at doing it. Yeah. So we go back to the Washington Post and now we get to meet Ben Bradley. Yeah. So good. Jason Robards. He's one of my all-time favorite actors. Yeah, he's amazing in everything that he does. But I love him in this. And again, from watching some of the documentaries, he's great casting because he really looks like him too. Yeah, yeah, he does. He really does. I yeah. mean, it's 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 good. And, and, I, and, and this is a really important figure in the United States. The editor of the Washington Post mm-hmm. at this key time. I mean, this is a really important guy. I remember I used to manage bookstores, and one of the first things when I became a manager of bookstore, uh, assistant manager of bookstore, was. Uh, getting Ben Bradley's biography and reading it. Oh, it's, I've it's, never read it. It's a fantastic biography. It's so engrossing from beginning to end. It's so fan. It's just great. and it's a picture of him like with his arms. And so when you see Robards do that occasionally, I'm like, oh, yes, yeah. they, well, must, they studied that guy. Well, I wanted to ask you, like, as a person who's uh, one of the things you cast or worked on casting was Game Change. Yeah. Which oh, is, yeah. Which is uh, you know casting real people to play. 
people in the public eye. Right. And if you're casting someone like Ben Bradley, like what's the approach? Like what are you thinking about? It's hard because you 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 don't want to be driven just by the look of the person, right. but in a perfect world, you find a person who captures enough of the essence of the look of the person, but yeah. also captures the essence of the feel and the vibe of that person yeah. as well as being hopefully a fantastic actor. And that's that's the hardest thing about that kind of stuff is that trying to find somebody that you can manipulate aesthetically enough to look close right. enough to the person that you're trying to do, but then also that really gets... And, and that's why I think Robards is so good is that he really not only looks a lot like him, but he's just, again, watching those docs, like mm. you're going, wow, Bradley... Either Bradley did some real good study of this guy, or he's right. just got something about that's very similar to this guy. And who's the casting director? Now I can't. So remember the casting name. director's name is uh, Alan Shane, okay. and uh, I just I have a lot of respect for that man because yeah. I think this is just a fantastic, fantastic cast. And all real around. quick, so. Game Change was the film with about Sarah Palin and her rise to power up with with yeah. McCain and all that. So you guys yeah. should watch it if you haven't. Yeah, that was David Rubin and Richard Hicks that. were the casting directors on that, and I was yeah. the associate on that. And it's uh, it was so much fun to do I'm that sure. that movie. That was one of the best experiences I've had of of working on a especially it was it was a really it was a pretty high profile thing well, too. You, had, and it you, was, know, you cast Julianne Moore and yeah. Ed Harris and yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of ton. amazing so, yeah Woody Harrelson, <laughs> Woody Harrelson. Yeah, it's yeah, a great, great, great stuff. cast it's a, it's a good cast um, <laughs> it's an addictive film too yeah it's a good yeah. it's a good film um, and although it's a it's a subject matter that makes my skin crawl <laughs> quite sure. a lot I this still, does too I yeah. still enjoy the movie um, and, and and Jason Robards is actually in this he he, he uh, is in this because he's buddies with Robert Redford. Oh. They had actually worked together on The Iceman Cometh, 1960 oh, yeah. right. TV right. movie, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet. Yes. And uh, Red, that's Redford's really his first big gig, one of oh, his first TV gigs. Wow. And uh, Jason Roberts, I guess, had fallen a bit on hard times. What? Um, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and so, you know, part of it was Redford wanting to bring him back, and he just kills it. Yeah, Every, he's actually he really, not in the movie that much. No, nope. but he he's he's almost more of a force than what yeah. Bernstein because he's immediately oh. presented as almost like a dark overlord at first because he takes their stuff and tears it apart and says, "You don't got a story here. Just bury this thing. Like put it on the seventh page." And they're both yeah. Redford and and Hoffman are like destroyed in there by what he's doing. Right? It's so fantastic. Well, you see this moment where Bernstein like starts to argue, <laughs> yeah, right? And then you know Bradley just gives him a look. Yeah. Well, like, it's no. also awesome because it shows the the two reporters and their differences. That yeah. Bernstein is starting to do it. Robart shuts him down, but then as soon as Robarts walks away, Woodward is like, "He's right. We don't have it." And because we don't have it, we have to go get our deep cover source. Yeah, Deep Throat. Deep Throat. <sighs> Hal Holbrook, the great Hal Holbrook. Yeah, love that man so much. Yeah, and 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 for for those of our younger listeners, I don't know that you can fully appreciate. The power of this mystery, of mm -hmm. who this person was. My whole childhood and growing up until I'm in my late 30s, I think. Yeah. When, when did we find out again? I think it's like 2000 or something. Yeah, it was in the 2000s. I was giddy. Yeah. Who is Deep Throat? I was is like, one of we're great finally mysteries. finding out who Deep Throat is. I mean, like, I was like... <laughs> Yeah. I was ridiculously excited, even though it really meant nothing to me because I didn't even know who right. Mark Felt was. But I was just like, we're finally going to find out this right. age old, you know, question, this, yeah. this thing that had like made us all. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and, and like crazy. you said, Steve, like we didn't know what Deep Throat was. Like this was the first presentation of it. I think in the film, like there was this idea of Deep Throat, and but it, now we see if a possible face what this whole idea would have been like, you know. And so if you've seen the film, you're listening to us, and you've seen the film. This was a huge deal for those of us of a certain age for decades. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, like along with the Kennedy assassination and yeah. a couple other things, there's not a lot of mysteries that have so captivated human consciousness. Yeah, and, and this and one we actually got an answer to. We got an yeah. answer. <laughs> it's Mark Felt, who was a F- high-level member of the FBI. Right. And he had met Woodward, I think, when Woodward was in the Navy, and they had become sort of friends. Right. And Felt was had served under J. Edgar Hoover and was very frustrated under him. And there's I'm this sure mix. Was. There's this mix of, in his motivations of why he did it, of genuine real patriotism and some sour grapes yeah. you know like he was a little pissed off about some stuff and this is the thing because it's not like we don't have whistleblowers today mm-hmm. you know and whistleblowers today just as then caused this very very complicated set of feelings yeah. which is on the one hand you have betrayed your oath you are right. breaking the rules and yeah. that that there are more important things way above you that you maybe can't understand and how can you do this yeah. and you're a traitor and yep. on the other hand, you are, we need to know this information, and you're a patriot and a hero. Right. And we see this with Snowden. We see this, you know, we ha- see this kind of debate happening. Chelsea Manning. Chelsea yeah. Manning yeah. is is that? Uh, but at the time of this movie, yeah. we don't know who this guy is. Right. It's just this guy in the dark in a parking lot, and he is a cagey person, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. Truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with twenty-five thousand dollars in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can. But that's all. Well, in the cloak and dagger, it's like, well, leave this flag in your flower pot and I will meet you. (laughs) Well, and for years, people thought it was Alexander Haig. He was was the number one suspect of it, right? Because he'd had issues with the Nixon White House and what have you. So, yeah, to find that it's Mark Felt. Well, and when we first see these, um, when we first see the precautions, the flag, changing cars, the parking lot, it seems a little silly. Yeah. (laughs) We're all like, really? Why did we go through all this stuff? Uh, By the end of the movie... Doesn't seem so silly. Nope. Um, and, and one thing I want to point out is so the, the cinematographer is Gordon Willis, mm-hmm. who's the cinematographer of The Godfather. Oh, such a great cinematographer. One of the greats, known as the Prince of Darkness. Yes. Because for <laughs> some reason... Probably for this movie. <laughs> oh, and well, The and Godfather. Godfather. Yeah. For so, some reason, he's able to get blacks and to look blacker than any blacks had been on film before. <laughs> and um, what, Which is a hard thing to do, by the way, how you, you know, in terms of how you manipulate light. Right. And one of the choices that was made thematically is so simple in this film and so great, which is that everywhere that Woodward and Bernstein go is dark. Yeah. Everybody's in shadows. Rooms are never well lit, except, mm-hmm. except the Washington Post. Right, which is the beacon of truth. Which is the beacon of which truth. Which is yeah. bright, bright white and yep. primary colors and all this, like the, the deep blues and reds and yellows that yeah. are like punctuating everything in the different rooms are just great. Yeah. And it's just so bright. It's that fluorescent, white, bright, you know, yeah. truth can't yeah. hide here. Yeah. You know? And in our conversation with Deep Throat, he says the one key thing, the one piece of advice, follow, follow the, the money. money. The money, yeah. <laughs> And that takes us on the next step of our Although, journey. again, yeah. I read something that that's not in the book. That oh, was really? made by the movie. Oh. That, was a, that was a movie thing. Well, it's been the truth ever since. Yeah. People always sure say, is. follow the money. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is the one of the things about uh, 
fiction made about real mm-hmm, subjects mm-hmm. is that Shakespeare was really not very accurate at all in his histories. <laughs> but I know more about the right. Shakespeare Richard III than I know about the real Richard exactly. III. Exactly. You know, uh, Charles Foster Kane is not William Randolph Hearst. They're no. really different. No. But the but it's some at certain points the fiction becomes more important than the reality. Yeah, even Gladiator, like Maximus, was not a bad no. emperor at all. No, no, he, he really saved his people for quite some time, and he did not die in the arena. No, he did not how he died. You know, yeah, that uh, one's and, not even close. No, it's yeah. not even close. And Cinderella Man, Max Baer was not a bad man at all. He was he when he felt incredible guilt of killing those people in the ring, and he was not like trying to kill people or trying to like all of that is bullshit that they created to make James Braddock and Russell Crowe's character more sympathetic. Well, and this goes back to something. <laughs> We said before, and we're going to say again, is that the truth is hard to find. Yeah. You know, it's like if you really want to know the truth, you got to work. Don't just be satisfied with something you saw in a movie. Right. Or something you read on a website or something like that. Or even in a book. Or yeah. even in a book. That you always to, question. You always have to question this stuff. So now we're, it, we're, we're making phone calls. We're in an empty office. Yeah. Um, and to follow this money, we find out that there's... Uh, this list of phone calls and we're trying to get the records of them. And so Bernstein goes down to Florida, I think it is. Yeah. Yep. And Dade County. And he wants to go meet with this guy. And the secretary does not want to let him in. Yeah. She is awesome. Yeah. I meant to look up her name, but she kills it. Yeah. She's just talk about taking a moment and just getting everything out right. of it as an actor. She's everything about her. She's so persnickety. <laughs> yeah. and I just love her. And, and then her, you know, Ned, Ned Beatty is yeah. who, who she's protecting, and he's fantastic in yeah. that role. Well, we get to see Bernstein's tricky little method, <laughs> and this is part of the fun of the movie of how he's going to get in to see Ned Beatty, get, make, creates this phone call, yeah. gets her out of the office, goes in to see Ned Beatty. Man, he just pops up in everything. Yeah. And it's always different. And it's and always, it's always amazing. Great. Yeah. yeah. Always great. Yeah. So he gets these phone records, and he gets the name Kenneth Dahlberg. Yeah. This is an important. This guy's name is on a check. And so he calls up to Woodward. It says, we got to find out Kenneth Dahlberg in like Minnesota or somewhere like that. And you know how you find that name? Phone books. <laughs> and they recreated those phone books. Oh, wow. For, oh, really? the, for the thing. Yeah, That's they recreated great. the phone books for, and, the, for the set. And again, like if I want to find something out, I say Google. Yes. And yeah. I get that information. Like the, the idea of like just looking through every phone book, yeah. book after book after book. Well, it's funny how quickly we forget. I mean, all three of us grew up in an yeah. age of card catalogs and, exactly. and, no, and no internet. I mean, like yeah. our, our foundational uh, educational experiences of writing reports and doing papers when we were first, we, they were on typewriters. Yeah. They were card catalogs. They were microfiche. Right. People listening, do you guys even know what microfiche <laughs> is? Yeah. I mean, like, we didn't have the internet. We had yeah. to leave our house to research. Like, today, you can literally stay in your house mm-hmm. and find out almost anything. Write you a whole want. paper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could even be on a podcast and not know someone's name and while in the middle of the podcast, <laughs> find out the information and no one would know the difference. That's right. Um, so, so he's going to make this phone call to Kenneth Dahlberg. This phone call is remarkable. Yeah. It is absolutely remarkable. And it's, again, this is a shot that is not showy, Mm-mm. but it is a six-minute long, all-in-one-take oh, wow. shot. Six minutes? Six minutes. Wow. Robert Redford believives this is the highlight of his career. This wow. Shot. This shot. That's great. It is so difficult. Wow, I wish you had told me that before I rewatched it last night. I would have, like, 
paid, paid more attention, more attention to that particular so scene. difficult technically. Yeah. So well, first of all, what you'll see is that he's making this phone call in the foreground. In the background, there's like a group of people at the at the uh, Washington Post, and they're talking, and they're partying, mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of things going on. And they're both in focus. And to do this, you use what's called a split diopter, which means that you have one side of the lens that has one focal length, one, one focal length, and the other side that has a different focal length. And you'll notice between them, there's this border of blurriness. Yeah. And the camera is doing a slow move and Redford's doing a slow move. And in order, he has to always be in the right place. And everything has to be timed out over these six minutes mm. of exactly where the camera's going to be, what those extras are doing in the background, and where that, that barrier, that split diopter out of focus section is, or none of this works. Yeah. It's extremely difficult. And it's although it seems like there's very little going on, Redford's performance is really remarkable. Yeah. He's writing things down, and you can see, again, that thing with Redford, you can see the wheels turning mm-hmm. in his mind as he's figuring things out. So, yeah. amazing shot. Obviously, uh, this, this is difficult for me. Uh, I'm, I'm caught in the middle of something, and uh, I, I don't know what. I, I what do you think it could be? Well, I, I deal with a lot of important people. People who work for the committee? Hello? For the, for the committee. The committee to re-elect the president? Yes. You see, I raised that money in, in cash, and uh, I, I have a winter home in Florida. Is uh, that Miami? Uh, Boca Raton. And, and, and uh, I didn't want to carry all that cash around. Now, you can understand that. Oh, of course I can. So I had it exchanged for the cashier's check. And how do you think it got into Barker's account? I, I know I shouldn't be telling you this, Gave it to Mr. Stans. I beg your pardon? I, I gave it to Stans. Maurice Stans? The head of finance for Nixon? It's an amazing shot. And in this scene, we discover this key piece of information that he did write this check yeah. and who he reported to. There's also this really weird thing of... I've just been through a terrible ordeal. My neighbor's wife has been kidnapped. Right. Oh, Which yeah, is that's so <laughs> random and strange. And you go, it's like, well, that only could be the truth. Right, because no one could ever make up something like that. But it also accentuates the unsettled nature of this entire film. Like it just adds more of unsettling feeling, and it does make it feel real. But what I think I love about this scene also is we get a sample of the amount of money that's being involved. That is like now we're getting a really, really concrete example. Yeah, because the number is just escalating. Yeah, twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. Like what? This is insane. Higher and higher. Yeah. Well, and there's this great moment, and again, it's just beautiful acting on Redford's part, where the uh, Dahlberg says something like. I know I shouldn't be telling you this, yes. but at Redford get, gets that gleam in his eye, yes. like he did in the first scene. Yes. It's that same gleam in the, yeah. like in the beginning, where he's like laughing when people are hanging up on him because he knows yeah. there's well, something and, there. And it's like this is this is what's so fascinating about acting is like so much in this film and in this scene in particular, Redford has to say one performance right. while showing us a different set of emotions. So he's getting really excited, but his voice has to be, "Oh no, it's fine." Yeah, you know, he has to be it's very totally kind cool. of calm. Right, um, and that is. It's just it's it's just beautiful. Well, and this that was the because Dahlberg is the first time we hear about Creep, right? Doesn't isn't Dahlberg where we learn? Because didn't didn't he work for Creep? Yeah, he worked for Creep. So that's I don't know if it's the first. time I think we've that might it, be but... the first time we get the inclination that Creep is somehow involved mm. with this, the committee to reelect the president. Yeah, and yet even even now the editors are still skeptical of the story. Mm-hmm. They're still skeptical of Woodward of course, and Bernstein, as they should be. Yeah, well, and this is big, big yeah. stuff. This isn't know? a local town paper. This is the Washington yeah, it's Post. The Washington yeah. right? Post. You, you could go bankrupt <laughs> with this bullshit if you do the wrong stories, you yeah. know. 
I was having lunch at the Sans Suit Sea. Oh, and oh, oh, this, this White House guy, a good one, a pro, came up and asked, what is this Watergate compulsion with you guys? Compulsion? I think and it's I a story. Said, this is not compulsion. I said, well, we think it's important. And he said, if it's Thanks. so goddamn important, who in the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? Well, now, what do you expect him <laughs> to say from the White House? You're doing a great job? Yeah, I now, Why don't you ask him what he's really saying? He wants to take the, the, the story away from Woodstein and, and uh, give it to the National Desk. have some experienced guys sitting around who know the politicians who have the contacts. We're aware exactly of that. Exactly what you like You people. said it, sitting around. Dan, it's a dangerous story for this paper. What if your boys get it wrong? Then it's our ass, isn't it? We all have to go out and work for a living. Yeah. Right. And, and we see Bradley is worried. It's the first time he hears that. We first time any of us hear the name Deep Throat. Yeah. Well, what else beside the money? Where's the goddamn story? The money's the key to whatever this is. Says who? Deep Throat. Who? Oh, that's uh, Woodward's uh, garage freak. His source and the executive. Garage freak. Jesus, what kind of a crazy fucking story is this? Who did you say? He's on deep background. And I call him Deep Throat. That the the reveal of the name Deep Throat and and uh, and the the sort of titter. It's balsam, right? Yeah, it's, it's balsam the, balsam's it titter of like, well, I I named him that because of the you know <laughs> he's, he's kind of embarrassed about it, but also proud of it. It's right. it's a beautiful moment as an actor of just kind of like, yeah. But as the veteran newspaper man, Bradley rejects it. Right, Bradley rejects this idea there. of an unnamed source. He's like. It's ridiculous, deep throat. Yeah. yeah, and and Woodward and Bernstein are in this elevator, kind of talking, like you know, again talking through this. And one of the things about this movie is a lot of ad lib. Yeah, and this oh. elevator is a lot of ad lib. Wow. Yeah, uh, like one of the things they did, and this was Redford's idea, and um, Dustin Hoffman just thought it was the craziest thing ever. Yeah, and then it ended up loving it, which is that Redford came to Hoffman and said, "You know what? We should learn each other's lines. Yeah, we should they, learn they both, all." The- they both knew. All of each other's lines, wow. so that they could be jumping in on right. each other. Right, and they all said, the anytime you feel like it, you finish my line, hmm. or I'll finish your line, okay. or you'll take it. So that there was never so that because what Redford's suggestion was, yeah. it should by the end of the film feel like we're one person. Yeah, they're one mind. Well, and these are that's what you do on stage. Yeah. Like when you act on stage, you want to learn everyone else's lines because there will be a performance yes. where one person yes. forgets their line or jumps three pages. Yeah. And if you understand, you can steer them back into the scene yeah. and a professional or a really good actor will understand, play the scene out and, and corral the play back onto the tracks. And so, yeah, it's really important to do that. I always did that as a stage actor is learning everyone yeah. else's lines. At that moment on stage, when that oh, happens, you're yeah. never more alive. Yeah, it You're is never so more alive. It's so true. I had that happen during the cruise for Arthur Miller. Oh, wow. Try to improv Arthur Miller when Tichaba doesn't come on the scene to get questioned by us. Yeah. And I'm Putnam and I'm like, we're running upstairs to the wo- to the, the girl who's sick and we're coming back down and we're like, where is Tichaba? Go get it. So we're sending, and I'm sending everybody off the stage to go find her because nobody can seem to find her. I send one person out, they don't come back for like two minutes. I'm like, oh, you, you go find Tichaba. So you're doing this whole thing and I'm like, I don't know how much more I can improv Arthur Miller here, but we've got to figure something out. I keep running back up yeah. and then finally Tichaba shows up the actress who played her, what had happened was she was knitting downstairs and had forgotten her cue. And when they tried to get, when they ran down and got her, her, she flipped out so much that her tassels caught on the yarn. And so she was spinning around and around trying to rip the yarn off the wow. tassels. And it and everyone, when she came on stage, to, to I will say this, and I I feel bad about it, I completely intimidated her in the scene as opposed to regular. Intim- I was like, what have you, where have you, what is it? Like I just went overboard because I was so like frazzled by her. Yeah, I really yeah, used you, you were it. in it. Yeah, I was. You, you were Use in the it. deep. 
I was, I was. But those are great moments because you're never more alive on a stage than yeah, when that's I, happening. I think all of us have some fantastic stories. Like I'm that, sure. So. I'm well, sure. and this is the thing that aren't even our own. Sometimes the, <laughs> movies are so opposed to that. Like yes. movies are so can be not live, so right, not right, live right. in this fundamental way for actors that finding out ways to make them a little live. Yeah. And this idea of Redford's of well, we'll just jump in. Yeah. Um, you know, ends up working really well. I don't know that it's a thing I would do with my actors, hmm. uh, except under very uh, specific circumstances. Yeah. So we meet this woman uh, 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 who has gone on a date with someone who uh, worked for Creep, right. and it's Lindsay Krause. Yeah. Lindsay Krause's yeah. first Lindsay Krause. film. Oh, it's her first film. It's her first right. film. And Chicago she, actress, right? Hmm? She's from Chicago, isn't she? She was married she, to David Mamet. So I feel Chicago, like she might yeah, have been from she, Chicago. She had, yeah. I think she had done some Steppenwolf. Broadway, but it was her first oh, okay. film. Um, um, this was definitely I her love first her. film. She's amazing. Yep. And, uh, and, and we get to this thing, which is how far do we push? Mm-hmm. Well, and this, this is the thing that I was talking about earlier that I love about the difference between Woodward and Bernstein, yeah, yeah. too, is that Bernstein earlier, we see him... You know, he's finessing the woman. He's, you know, he's finessing her. He's charming her and he's doing all the right things to get her to open up and all that kind of stuff. And then they're asking Lindsay Krauss to Mm -hmm. do this thing that she really doesn't want to do. And you can see Bernstein really wanting to push and really wanting to make it happen because he knows that if he puts the screws to her, she'll do it. Right. But then Woodward knows that if we pull back, that's what's going to get her to do it willingly instead of forcefully right right and she'll be much more on our side and a help to us in the long run Mm -hmm. if we get her to come to us willingly so he backs off in just the right way so that she kind of goes god i gotta help these guys yeah i gotta help these guys and she does it which is a list of the phone numbers of the people who work for creep and then we get this again this is really, really boring. <laughs> we are going to go through every name on this list and call them and try to figure out who knows what, who's, and we hear name after name. But it's also fun because they show the deductive reasoning stuff of, of what it is to be a journalist and what it is to be trying to find it. And they're like, so how are we going to figure this out? It's in alphabetical order. How are we going to figure right. out who, who works right. with who? And right. they're like, oh, okay, let's look at the, the extension yeah, numbers. And yeah. like, is the, I'm, I'm at 329. Is yeah. there a 327 or a 326 or a 328? You know, And so mm-hmm. it's, it's really... Again, making something a little more exciting that's not very exciting. And again, we're in this needle in a haystack. Doors slammed in their face. Doors slammed in their yeah. face. People frightened. People won't talk to them. Failure, 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 failure. Including they go to talk to a woman who's not, she's the wrong name. Yeah. <laughs> They're in really there. She's giving scene. them coffee. They're having that's a great, great time. They're excited. And... How long have you worked at the committee? Committee? Yes, the uh, committee to re-elect the president. Oh, Oh, no, I don't work at the committee to re-elect the president. I work at Garfinkel's in the accounting department. Which I remember growing up on the East Coast. What kind Garfinkel's? of store? Is like a department store? Yeah, yeah, it was like a department store. It was like a closed department. It was like, it was like Sears or something, but yeah. higher-end Sears. Yeah, like, higher-end yeah, Sears. Yeah, and so, Garfinkel's yeah, it was, department store. Yeah, exactly. But what I love about this, though, Steve... Was it the, the accounting department, I think. Right. <laughs> what I love about this sequence is, the, is that we're getting the taste of the other side of this, right? Mm-hmm. That people don't want to talk about this, right. not just necessarily because they don't want to get in trouble, but because they're against what they're trying to do because yeah. they're trying to bring down their president. They're trying to bring down their party. And that is important. We see that happening now too. People are resistant to this idea like on this, on the other side, like, no, 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 we've put in someone in power who's our party. We don't want to talk or we don't want to get, and that's a thing. That's a real, real thing. And I like that they, this film does a great job of showing both sides of this situation and giving voice to both sides so that you can decide where you 
where you fall. And this sequence does that. Well, and the, and there's a point in uh, any, not just politics, but yeah. any group thing where loyalty is really important. Yeah, man. And you don't talk smack outside of your group because, yeah. look, everybody's human. Everyone has flaws. Yeah. And the fact that, like, John Kennedy was a womanizer mm-hmm. and they didn't talk about mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. I, you know... Sure. Him, his womanizingness to me is not important to his presidency, right? You know, but then there's a certain point where this training of loyalty is yeah. like now it's gone too far, right. you know, and it's really where that point is. It's the same thing we talked about with an informant, with yeah. a whistleblower. Yeah, it's like at what point do you go? No, no, this is too far. Yeah, this has become important. Yeah. So they continue to do this needle in a haystack search, um, and 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 while this is happening, we get little sights of what's happening in the outside world, like. Nixon is receiving the nomination for president, and they're just typing away alone in the office. Working, All those great scenes working, of working. like real footage happening on a TV, and either a you know push in or a pullback, or like right. or just sitting there watching them, and then just again the, the sounds, yeah. the sounds in the post are just awesome. The the background people chatting, you hear little snippets of conversations, mm-hmm. you hear the typewriters, you hear. All of it. It's yeah. just great. Well, and this is, again, the 70s style of filmmaking yeah. where we're like really in the environment and it feels very natural and real, mm-hmm. even though it's very, very filmic. Um, yeah. And uh, in continuing this, like knocking on doors, Bernstein knocks on this one door and the sister, not thinking about it, invites him in. Yes. And now he's going to talk She's to She's like, Jane. oh, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk, talk to my sister. Yeah. Who's Jane Alexander? The great, oh, great Jane Alexander. She is just yeah. everything in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> She's so... Her performance is so subtle and timid within moments of ferocity that Mm -hmm. just kind of want to jump out of her, but she holds back. It's just, it's, it's and frightened and wanting to be, do the right thing and, and loyal, still caring about the people that she worked with. A really complicated performance. Well, and that's why you cast an actress like this because Jane Alexander always does a great job of conveying vulnerability and strength in equal doses. It's not strength in the way that it's overt. It's strength in that she's power. She's strong enough to show her feelings, Mm -hmm. to show her uh, truth, right? And still resist, but then give in, resist because her better, the better angels of her nature, of her mind, of her intelligence, tells her morally she has to do the right thing here, even though she knows she could get in trouble. She knows she's she's like violating the trust of these other people. She knows that what they did was wrong inherently, and you see that in those moments. Same thing if you watch her in Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. Oh yeah, if you ever seen that movie? She she really carries the power of his. His evilness at times, she carries that because she loves him so much. She's still willing to show her vulnerability, but still stay who she is. You yeah. know? And so and you see this here in the sequence. And the yeah. sister is just great the way oh. she totally absentmindedly sets her up in the situation. It, well, it, and well this, I, I wonder, though, I wonder if it's absentminded or if she's almost maybe. trying to she has help. A dr- yeah, maybe because she knows her sister. Who knows her sister better you than know, her? Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because I, I, I never know on that one yeah. what, what, which way I think it is. But there's well, and the so. thing that's happening, and it's happened in a very subtle way, is that through all these doors, slamings and people that won't talk to him and in particular with this jane alexander scene the fear is growing oh yeah like where where when our first deep throat meeting i was kind of like this is you know right you know maybe it's a little silly now i'm starting to get scared and bernstein's uh hoffman's intensity in this performance Mm. and his tenacity doggedness yeah to keep her talking and how he does it and the manipulation i don't want you to feel in a position where you have to disclose names you know, I, I can just ask you initials, and in that way you're not divulging any information. We have some idea. And would that be all right? Was there an M? You can just nod either way. 
and of course he's smoking a lot of cigarettes yeah. and drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> this coffee's cold. Yeah. You know? and, <laughs> and, and all this stuff. And he f- comes back to Woodward's super caffeinated, yeah. pulling wrappers and napkins and everything he's written his notes on. And they're going through the, that we think, because you know, we're trying to get the list of names of people that control the right. fund. And we've almost got it. And Bernstein only got initials. Yeah. And it's like, and, and Woodward now knows Bradley's not going to accept this. We need more. Mm-hmm. And now they come up with essentially a con yeah. of how they're going to get. And it's this sort of, well, we know P is Porter. Yeah. You know, to get her to confirm it. Carl, we have got to go back there and get that bookkeeper to say who the names are and not initials. Well, she ain't going to give it to you because I was with the woman for six hours. We've got to try. Could, well, then you're going to have to trick her, threaten her. She's not going to do it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what we could do? What? Uh, listen, we go back there. Yeah. And you ask her who P is. Yeah. And then I say, no, 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 no. We know P is Porter. I just bury it. Porter. Okay, now wait, wait a minute. Wait. I say to her, who is P? Right. And then you say to me. I say, no, we know P is Porter. You mean you try to fake her out? Right. And what if she denies it? We're screwed. Uh, and we get to see him go back again. She's terrified. With Woodward. With Woodward. Yeah, they surprise well, her out of her And it's great, too, because like, they, just, they play her and play yeah. that scene so well. Yeah. Because every question she's got about... How they're going to get her in trouble? They've got an answer. To yeah, it. you know that we yeah. parked around, you know, parked around the corner. We, yeah. you know, if you if you let us in, they won't see us. You know, like right. every question she has, she they've got a. Um, it, it's almost cruel. Yeah, it the is because sure. you feel for her. Sure, of I course. Mean, well, and this is this thing about this movie is yeah. like they're after the truth, right? You know, but that's what I tell. That's what I like about it. Both sides are represented. Both sides. They're not just seen as heroes. No, there's a there's a consequence to what they're doing. There's casualties to what they're doing. Well, Absolutely. and I think she wants them yes, to know of the course truth. She, does. she, on some level, she wants yeah. them to have. This I don't think she would have surrendered. She's not. It. She's not feeling good about yeah. where she's at and what's going on. And yeah. you know, it's, it's and, not. And that leads us to this guy Sloan. Yes. Um. And. Uh, who had been an attorney working in the Nixon White House who mm-hmm. had resigned mm-hmm. and uh, they go and who answers the door but Meredith Baxter, Baxter? yes um, uh, who's like I grew up with watching on Family yes, Ties of course um, and and Did, now you could really see how well they're working together yeah. now they're just like uh, they are finishing each other's sentences they're a team yeah we go back to the editors guess what still not enough for Ben Bradley <laughs> <laughs> asshole <laughs> And he has lovable a asshole great, great, great line god damn it when is anyone going to go on the record when, when in this is thing? anyone going to go on the record on this thing oh I love Jason Robards <laughs> please play so the clip good. here please oh I will there's no, there's no question god damn it when is somebody going to go on the record in this story um, <laughs> and they get we call up Mitchell who's yeah. asleep yeah all that crap you putting it in the paper well like it's all been denied you tell your publisher tell Katie Graves she's going to get a tit caught in the big ring if that's published it's 11.30. The guy doesn't know what time it is. Yeah. He's, he's so groggy. Morning or night. Yeah, morning, morning or, or night. night. And he goes, you guys with your... So don't go... Uh, you know, he does all this kind of stuff. But that's it. You can it catch him in those him. moments. Yeah. yeah. You can catch him in those moments. Yeah. People people want to tell... People inherently want to tell the truth. If you catch them when their guard's down, they will tell you the truth. And that's the thing. Whether they're waking up or on drugs or drunk or whatever. Like, if you can catch them at the right time with the right question, they will tell you the truth. And it's all there. Oh, yeah. And suddenly we got something and Bradley says... That's a great scene, yeah. man. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that, baby. And, and, and they run this story and the White House comes up with, I love this term, their non-denial denial. denial. Yeah. It's a great, great term. <laughs> this sequence uh, where they do the non-denial denial... denial the when you that's actual footage of that guy yeah. going up there 
You could juxtapose Sean Spicer's footage talking oh, sure. about the whole situation with the It is almost the same. The press, this, the press, that, the press is, uh, and and Brad, Ben Bradley's political leanings, like yeah. this whole inference that the only reason they're searching the truth is because they're politically biased. This is the escape. Uh, this is the shield that people who are guilty use all the right. time. And to see it happening now, even more so in our current political climate, what's going on with, with Trump and Russia, we see that they're like, oh, fake news, alternative, you know, this idea of alternative facts this idea like oh no cnn it's clinton news network all this bullshit to obscure the fact that there's legitimate truth that is coming out that research you you destroy by destroying the media destroy the ability to be questioned and it is it is a dictator tactic and nixon was doing that through his people that was all through his people so it's not it's not a surprise to see it happening again it's unfortunate it's funny i had a i had a political science professor at cal and what he said at one point was the moment that you switch from factual debate to ad hominem attacks, to attacking the other side, is the moment that might win you the fight, but it is the moment you've lost the argument. Yes, absolutely. And it's a really hard thing because if someone starts throwing mud at you, it's mm-hmm. you. You can't not it's, throw it's mud back. It's human nature to throw it back. It's not yeah. even that it's human nature. It's that it, although it is, yeah. it's that this is what's effective. Yeah. Once the once the argument is someone's calling you a son of a bitch and swinging yeah. punches at you, yeah. and you're going, let's let me bring out some statistics. Yeah. You're not going to win that fight. Well, and it, that's why something like that's why something like Bill O'Reilly getting kicked off Fox News is so shy. He should have been kicked off years ago for the, the lies he told. But it was because they settled sexual harassment suits, and the, that number came out. Once the number came out, and the amount of money and the amount of lawsuits there were, then all of a sudden advertisers pull out all of a sudden stuff. So that's that's the thing. Once facts really come out and people listen to the facts, that's the difference. People listen to the facts and they move the money. Once again, follow the money. Then things change. Well, and the, you know, we're going to talk about the, again on stuff to say maybe at the end. But, yeah, yeah. But the reason that Bill O'Reilly was on Fox News for so long is that he made sixty million dollars a year for that network. Right, yeah. but he also brought in viewers, yeah. a lot of viewers who bought his stuff, of his course. side of stuff, of yeah. course. But of course, we're still not there, and we start to find out about this guy, Donald Segretti. Yeah. And Donald Segretti is a young guy and was employed by Creep, yeah. and they did something they called rat fucking. Yeah. Great term. Yeah. Great term. And his performance, it's, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Walden is a great actor who... The uh, lawyer that, he, that Bernstein goes down to see? Yeah. My friends, that's my favorite scene in the movie. The entire yeah. sequence is my favorite scenes in the movie because that guy is so relaxed in the middle of everything falling apart in his life. Yeah. The fact that he sits Indian style on his outdoor chair yeah. was everything to me. It's brilliant. And he starts to talk about the USC mafia and he starts to talk about it stuff and he starts to slowly open up his own vulnerability right. because he's like, I had to do this. You don't understand. We went to college together. There's this, like he doesn't say that, but that's what's inherent in what he's talking about. That's the underlying thing he's playing and I can sense that and see that and Bernstein almost feels sorry for him because I feel sorry so, for him. Exactly, because he's so willing to talk about it in such a happy way even though he's like i'm probably gonna lose everything i'm probably gonna go to jail and you'll come visit me or whatever like it's just so great how matter and, of fact he is smile. about it yeah his smile well, there's is so like... much pain in it yes well and you see when all with all of these things yeah. you see people that just get in over their heads yes now i'm not defending what he did at so, all of course not but but like you his performance is great it's yeah. funny too because i remember there's a uh lou grant was a tv show yeah he's, he was on the show oh was so, he really like i like for oh. me he was and i watched that show. i love that show damn i don't yeah. remember him on that i also show. just yeah. love that in, in in the scene he tells he confesses that yeah we did a lot worse stuff 
back at USC yeah. than we're doing with, with Creep. He's right. like, he's like the, things, the rat fucking that they did at USC was way oh, worse than the stuff they're doing here. So can, yeah. I, can, I, can I briefly blow your mind? Sure. So Donald Segretti, another person who was a disciple of his, not exactly part of the USC mafia because he didn't go to USC, yeah. but was part of the rat fucking, was a young college student named Carl Rove. Of course he was. <laughs> um, and when you look at some of the things that happened, particularly in 2000, like yeah. there's the phone call that went around in, uh, about uh, John McCain. Yeah, having they, a black illegitimate daughter. Black, yeah, yeah, and that's, that's rat fucking. You know? I hate that shit, man. I hate yeah. that shit. There's, and, no, there's no... How you can look yourself in the mirror is beyond me. And go to church is beyond I'm pretty me. sure Carl Rove doesn't show up in mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Actually, you know, today... I well, look you give back him at too him, much I, credit to be a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> but enough about that. It's not sexy enough to be a vampire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, the non-sexy vampires. They just don't... <laughs> oh, do they have them? They don't sell so they well. Must they must exist. <laughs> I mean, if you get bit by... Va- do vampires only bite sexy people? Like, like if you were hard up, you're really hungry, and there was know. this sort of schlub. I don't know. Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt are pretty sexy. That's I don't true. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, uh, the Legosi. Copy, the cinephile's digression. Yeah, let's copyright that, that film right now. <laughs> Not so much Legosi, but yeah. Um, All right. So now we go back to Deep Throat, yeah. and now it's really scary. Yeah. And there's this moment... Of and they're starting to go. Well, how high does this go? Where does this go to? Because look, we're not naive. Presidents have people killed. Yes, you know what I mean. Like if this is as high as it is, mm-hmm. then it's really scary. And he's talking to to Deep Throat, and there's a car that just makes that noise that cars yeah. makes when mm-hmm. they're moving tires on concrete. That kind of, that kind of squealing out. Redford turns. Deep Throat has pulled a Batman yeah. disappearance, and then. Woodward starts to walk out of the parking lot and there's footsteps echoing. Yeah. It is fucking scary. Yes, it is. It is real. We're in real fear now. And Redford yeah. does a great job of... Oh, yeah. Like, yeah he the, does the, that the, turn. The slight run and then the turn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, it's just the lightest... It's very 70s. Of, yes. But it's, but, it's, but it's awesome. <laughs> so there's this woman who was on this date with this guy... Mm-hmm. Who said he knew who wrote the musky letter? Yeah. The musky letter, by the way, is a, I think this is the one where it's a letter about, the, is this about the the wife in the asylum? Or I thought to, it was the Canuck letter. Is it the Canuck? And what is the letter? Do you remember? Right. Here's what it is. One of the dirty tricks is that a letter was written, and I can't remember what the content of it was, that right. by Creep, by the Nixon campaign, that to make it look like something was going on with Muskie, who yeah. was the opponent that wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it essentially ruined Muskie's uh, campaign, although it was false. And so this guy, this woman's on this date with this, who works at the Post with this guy who says, I know who wrote that letter. Yeah. Um, and again, we have Bernstein and Woodward in the scene of how far do we push it? And what's fascinating about this one, Woodward has always been sort of the holding back one. Yeah. And then he, you, there's this coldness to him because he says, do you think he said it to impress you to try to get you to go to bed with him? Jesus. No, I want to hear her say it. Do you think he said that to impress you, to try to get you to go to bed with him? Why did it take you two weeks to tell us this, Sally? Look in here. I guess I don't have the taste for the jugular you guys have. And Bernstein's kind of yeah, shocked. Yeah, even Bernstein's shocked in that moment. Like, really? Did you just say yeah. that? But Woodward is like, I'm going after the fucking truth. Yeah. And because it's been building, it's been building to yeah. this point. Yeah. And we'll see later on with, with deep throat as well. He's been building to this point where enough is enough. Right. Yeah. I want my answers. And, um, she ends up going, getting on the phone with mm-hmm. the guy with them listening in. Right. 
And well, no, I think he calls. Well, they call first. They, oh, they, right. oh, that's what it is. You're yeah. right. They call him and yeah, ask him right. questions, and then he yeah. calls back to call to talk to her right. to get pissed at her, and she corrals them over to listen. Yeah, and they listen in, and uh, and then does he call? And then he calls Bradley, and then he calls Bradley. Into the Bradley. office with Bradley, and Bradley. I've got a wife, and a, I've got a wife and a family, and a dog and a cat. Yeah. I believe is the the thing. I've got a wife, a dog and a family, and a dog and a cat. I have a wife and a family, and a dog and a cat. A wife and a family and a dog and a cat. Right, Ken, right. Yeah. Uh, Ken, I don't want to print that you were in Sally's apartment. Thank God. I just want to know what you said in Sally's apartment. And now we have this other piece of information, which is, is Haldeman, and there's all these names that we're not going to go in, but is Haldeman the last guy to control the fund? And they know that Sloan knows, and so they go back to this guy, Sloan, whose wife has just had a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, That's Stephen Collins, right? Is that Sloan? I think so, yeah. That's Stephen, Stephen Collins, Collins, yeah. yeah. Um, and they... I'd like to take a moment here to talk about Stephen Collins. I think he does a fantastic job. Oh, he's great. Part. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Collins did a lot of great work. You know, he was in uh, uh, Star Trek Motion Picture. He was in Tales of the oh, Gold right. Monkey, one of my favorite ABC oh, yeah. shows from the 80s. And then he got on Seventh Heaven. And unfortunately for him, in a very tragic way, he was uh, he divorced Faye Grant, who was the lead actress in V, with, with uh, Mark Singer. And it came out that he had recorded, they had recorded their sessions inside their therapy sessions. He had sexually abused some teenage girls. And this oh caused them to be persona non grata in Hollywood. Now yeah. they stopped the reruns of Seventh Heaven. It was a whole thing. And he never denied it. He just said it, it was a private thing in a therapy session. So how ironic that he's playing this part in this film. Wow. And later a cons his own kind yeah. of cover-up, trying to do his own uh, kind of cover-up yeah, in the situation. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. 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 yeah, so it's just an interesting situation. And he's so good, too. Like, yeah, he really is. He's one of the one of my favorite sort of key little players in yeah. this. Of like, like the mo whenever he's on screen, you just... You just believe him. He's so there's something so honest about yeah. him, and and so um, just pleading of wanting yeah. to not be caught in the middle of well, this, and, and not are... his wife with the baby. Like he's just right. he, he just feels like a, a cog in a machine. Yeah, you know? and his motives are genuine. He's like yeah. I. I believe in this country. I'm a patriot and mm. I'm a Republican. Like I want my party to not be part of this, right? There's a genuine nature to it all. Well, and but he's, he's a also real, methodical. For, from my understanding about the real <clears throat> Sloan, I can't yeah. remember his first name now. He's a real hero in this story. Yeah. Like, because he said at a certain point, I can no longer be a part of this. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so they go back to I, Sloan and again, they play a similar game. Yeah. Well, we already know this and they play this little game on him and the key and there's just this really fascinating little semantic thing because what they're talking about this guy's been called before the grand jury yeah. and they're asking about his grand jury testimony yes and they're kind of saying well would you have a problem with this he, he sort of confirms that Haldeman's the guy mm -hmm. and then but he won't be the source about it but he it. won't be the source right. and again we have this thing of we need multiple sources to confirm the information right. it's not enough for Bradley Bernstein realized he have as a buddy he calls mm -hmm. him up and the guy won't confirm either. And Bernstein comes up very quickly with this. I'm going to count to 10. If you're still on the phone, that means everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. And the hold or to not hold. And the, it's, and he says it's so fast. And, it's well, just, and the worst part too is the guy even says, so hang up. Yeah. And that's the moment where Bernstein should have said, blah, 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 blah. Hang up. Like, yeah. like reinforce what the contract is. Right. He right. doesn't. And that's like one of the fatal flaws of that, of what goes wrong in right. that moment. So they published this story based on what Sloan said, based on the weird hang up, don't hang up thing. Yes. And they got it wrong. And we have this great Ben Bradley Woodstein. Wood, oh my God. Woodstein. The Woodstein. Oh, so good. And what's so, so good. And what's so interesting. And then the, then the post has to, 
they're, they're trying to decide like do we yeah. do we hang Woodward and Bernstein out to dry because right. they've made this mistake well but because let's let's be clear they don't get it wrong not 100 percent wrong they miss yeah. their methodology of, was wrong their methodology yes. was wrong but Haldeman was the right, right yes. guy. The key, this is, and this is, I think this is so important because mm-hmm. what we're talking about is what can we use as proof, yeah. not whether or not Haldeman controlled the exactly. source right. He did. He was one of the guys that controlled. They're hundred percent right. But their but their proof is wrong. Yeah, right, the connecting of the dots. The connecting of the dots they, is, is because a little they, skewed. Yeah. They said that Sloan was asked about this at the grand jury, and he wasn't. He was never asked. Right. And so and so they're in trouble not because what they're saying is wrong, but because or or just a tiny piece because of it was wrong. Because the facts are right. a little yeah. off. Right. Um, That's why it's so beautiful what happens next with Bradley. Right, because he stands by. Let's stand by yeah. the boys. And yeah. there's that moment, you know, we stand by our. Was it we stand by our he boys or we stand by our story? We stand by our story. And he that's he said that's our own non-denial denial. Yeah. Um, and and again, in contrast to things that are happening today, there are so many things that are put out that are mm-hmm. not factually true mm-hmm. on so many levels. And and I'm going to just say by both sides because there's yeah. the things are being spun all the time, absolutely, constantly. And because things are moving so fast, mm-hmm. no one stops and says this was incorrect. And you right. think about the meticulousness which which they're trying to find the truth in this mm-hmm. film man we need I, we need more of that steve you're great you're great it's a great point you're great to say that but i also think the public needs to take responsibility of, I for agree. their their in their willingness to accept uh unresearched uh situation or uh, stories or stories that are not as methodical as they need to be as accurate as they need to be their willingness to accept this kind of journalism as truth yeah there is a but it's all, supply and demand but it's also part of uh, the the time i yeah. mean like i think because i mean one of the things they talk about in the movie is the deadlines and that right. there are these things that like deadlines are a whole different ball game right. these days i mean like one of the, one of the things i was thinking about is that I can't almost read any article these days that's about something of like a factual nature mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. at the end of the article you won't whenever you read it already see that there yeah, is update. an update yeah, or yeah. a retraction yeah, because that's... by the time I've read it it's 2 hours to 2 days old yeah. and in that time so much has changed already yeah. or so many facts have been checked and like because things are put out without the level of scrutiny right. that we used to because it's, we're the 24 hour news cycle all this yeah. kind of yeah. stuff everything has to be now 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 exactly that's one of the beautiful things about this movie is it really harkens you back to the time when yeah. papers were run a certain way yeah there was a deadline and there you had to check and like you know they, i love the thing of like it's you know we have 20 minutes till deadline and they're on the fo- they're both in different phones yeah. doing calling different people trying to get stuff done because they have this thing yeah. whereas in this internet age that we live in now the deadline thing is a much more loosey-goosey mm-hmm. thing, it's more fluid yeah yeah it's very fluid. um it's the deadline is always exactly yeah, things always. happen always, instantly yes. um the uh so Wilbert goes back to Deep Throat oh, man. and now he's pissed. He gets a verbal spanking. It's though. so yeah, beautiful it too because yeah. it's finally you finally see Deep Throat go okay. Yeah. You put the investigation back months. Yes, we know that. And if we're wrong we're resigning. Were we wrong? You'll have to find that out won't you? Listen I'm tired of your chicken shit games. I don't want hints. I need to know what you know. Well, only because he starts out saying, like, you shot, you overshot, yeah. you, you made Haldeman a, a victim, you made him sympathetic. Yeah. I didn't think anybody could do that. And then and, and Redford says, cut this shit. Yeah. Tell me the, what's Redford the truth. Redford just you know? gives yeah. him the what for. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, the, the deep throat stuff in that thing there, it's also wonderful to watch um, 
Hal Holbrook have that moment, like you talked about earlier about Redford having the the wheels turning. Like you can yeah. see as soon as yeah. Redford gives him the what for in that scene, you can see the wheels mm-hmm. turning in Deep Throat's mind, right. and he decides in that moment, "Okay, I'm going to help them. Yeah. I'm going to help them. I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to go deeper. Yeah, and I'm going to finally deeper give than them. Deep Throat has ever gone before. <laughs> I'm going to give them <laughs> what they need. I'm going to give these boys what they need so that we can get this." done even a deep and it's throat. beautiful because you, you actually like you Hal Holbrook is such a great actor that deep you see too. Deep, the deepest deeper throat throat. Throat. I'm trying to make a <laughs> oh, sorry, sophisticated point we're here. children <laughs> you know Ben <laughs> Hal Holbrook is such a good actor in that moment and you just see him yeah. the pain and the decision and the and the thoughtfulness that's going into it and it's, just and it's great. a great point you bring up Karen because this is when we humanize deep throat like yeah. before he's just giving information he's giving Redford shit but here in this moment when he decides to help he is no longer just Deep Throat. There is a human being behind the name. And finally, he comes out and says it, and he yeah. says, your lives are in danger. Yeah. So Woodward goes back to Bernstein's place, yeah. and first thing he does, he turns the music up. Yeah. He turns more music up, and they type, and they have this conversation in typing, which is, A, brilliant in terms of their lives being in danger, right. but it's also brilliant in terms of typing is their way of yes. communicating. Right. And so it's so great to see them type these questions back and forth to each other. And so now... Middle of the night, Woodward and Bernstein go to Bradley's house. Yeah, pull him Ballsy, outside. Man. Pull him outside. Yeah, tell him what they've got. Great He's house, like, why buddy. can't you call me? Phones aren't safe. Yeah, why can't we come inside? We can't come inside. Why can't you come inside? <laughs> And, then, and he's and, in his bathroom. I just I love that he's on his porch or out his front yard in his bathroom. And then it's Bradley great. makes a speech that is so good. Yeah. I will say nothing else about it except cut to it. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Because that, as much as he is amazing in every scene that he does in this yeah. movie, this moment is like. Yeah. And I think my favorite yeah. part of the moment is when he says, or I'm going to get angry. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. You know, the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Then that's the moment where you're like, oh, so he's been, he hasn't actually been angry this whole time. He's just been on them to get shit right. And now anger is a real emotion where you're violating his ethics and his job. And that's why he's saying, saying, you you're gonna get. I'm gonna yeah. get angry, and that's a real great well, warning. And part of being a young person, you could uh, compare this to a sports movie, sure, because you got to have a great coach, absolutely. And the great coach is demanding mm-hmm. and tough mm-hmm. and complicated and, and fatherly, and and, <laughs> and 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 teaches you the moral core and the right. value system, right. and forces you to do your best. And, and that's you, what they do. And you want to play for him, and you want to makes play you want to play for him. Yeah. And that's what. And Woodward Bernstein go back. And it's funny you mentioned. You were right at this moment when you had stopped. Yes. Uh, when I was watching it in preparation for this podcast, I stopped because I had I was falling asleep. And I was like, okay, I, I don't want to be asleep to see this 
this little the next what I thought was the next ten minutes of the movie, and I woke up the next morning. I started, and it's uh, the end of the movie. <laughs> and so right. it was like, oh, 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 shit! This was the moment. Well, because you know? normally, like if it was in the sports movie, yeah. when the coach makes the big speech, yeah. Now we're gonna have the final game. Well, exactly. yeah, because I mean, you know? we literally go from that scene with Bradley, then it's just next to that scene in the, in the post, right? And they're where, right. It's the post, where it's the TV and they're, and they're, and they're typing. typing, which I think and is it's, a great and juxtaposition. It's, it's, it's a long scene too. Yeah. Like it's like. It's at least a yeah. couple minutes. And, and it's this wide shot, and uh, it might be a split diopter as well a, with the TV in the foreground. In. And you push in, and they're typing, and nothing is said. And then you go to... Well, but there's the... But there's, Nixon is being, Nixon is being sworn in, being right? Nixon sworn is being in. sworn yes, in which as is president. A, that's what I love, the the juxtaposition, the dichotomy of what's going well, on there. Well, and that's why you don't think it's ending. Right. Like, you're seeing right. Nixon being sworn in. How yeah. could this be the end of the movie? Yeah. But the whole time, they're 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 planning his downfall. Like, they're going to create yeah. his downfall. They are and working... it's the ironic moment. With their typewriters. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're giving Bradley what he wants. They're, yep. they're doing what he, what and, he asked him to do. Yep. And then you go to the teletype machine, and you see... Piece by piece, as more destruction happens, yep. this person resigns. This person sent us to jail. This person going to court. And then a pause, and Nixon resigns. Well, Nixon refuses to resign. Yeah, yeah. Then the pause, 1974, Nixon resigns. And, and that's it. Yeah. And it is a profound And ending. then it goes to it goes black. To black. Yep. With and no, then no, no sound no for sound. And, then, yep. and then as soon as the credits start to come up, then I yeah. think the music comes up. Yep. Again. It's just like, and you're like, what? Yeah. Once again. <laughs> and then you're also, yes. But yes. like for a moment there, you're like, really? Yeah. Once again, one of these unusual films that stays with you because it kind of breaks the medium to a degree. It pushes the medium and does something out of step with what you would normally see in these. Because we've seen newspaper stories all through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, sure. up until this point. Like we've seen newspaper stories, but this is something else. And they and this is also the 70s when you could have these kind of darker endings, ambiguous endings to films and people loved it, right? Because it was, once again, you're pushing the boundaries of the medium. Uh, the audience wanted those kinds of things because they felt that way themselves about their lives. And this black frame into no sound and then the credit starts lets you, it's the death of the presidency. It's the death of that like the almost the death of america because it's almost a funeral because it's all in black well and i love that it's words on paper yeah are the weapon that defeat the enemy yes. in the end yeah like because that is what this is about the value mm -hmm. of words on paper and how it influences the public to demand better and and the and this is a, a heroic story mm -hmm. it's a brave story it, it, it's so what these two guys do is so amazing yeah um so uh it's funny, at the beginning of every show, I always say, oh, we're going to explore the themes, history, filmmaking, and I always say the influence it has on us today. Mm -hmm. And there's some movies where we've talked about that quite a bit, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of movies where we go like, well, the influence is, you know, we really like this movie. Yeah. You know? It still makes us smile yeah. after however many years. Right. Um, this movie is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of movies I love, but I wouldn't say they're important. And this one is. And... Um, the first thing is, is this influenced a whole generation of journalists, right? Just as it influenced you, yeah. you know, people really went like, Oh, this is what I want. This is an important job. Yeah. This is like being a doctor or, uh, you know, like this is a, a, a job of the health of the world is dependent upon people doing this job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Actually, can I jump in with a, one of my favorite quotes we heard sure. in one of the, um, the, uh, docs we we watched was, there is no question that the coverage of Watergate by the Post strengthened considerably the press in the nation. Yeah. It showed that with courage, you could do the role that we all felt that journalism should do. Mm. Walter Cronkite. Yeah, that makes sense. 
that just we, when we were watching the doc about this i was just like yeah. oh man can we just like plaster that up on every billboard <laughs> in the world right now and we see how things have changed and i was thinking about this a lot it's like what happens today what happens when these things big stories happen well you don't have a couple of guys painstakingly finding the truth over many yeah. years yeah. what you have instead is the 24-hour news cycle and the internet and bloggers have an instant need to come out with a story right now yeah. and then because they have to fill up out, not just a few pages in an or a few lines paragraphs in an article yeah. they have to fill up hours and hours of material they don't have any facts yet so they have people come in and speculate well maybe it means this yeah it could be this maybe it could be this and then you have people speculate on the speculators mm -hmm. well if it's this than this right. what's that going to do to their chances in the election what's that going to do how are they going to do in iowa if this is true right and 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 that speculation and speculation on speculation and speculation on spe and discussion of the speculation <laughs> becomes what we think is the news yeah and the truth is completely obfuscated in this scenario and so the discipline and the hard work to get to the truth which as we see is needle in a haystack slow painstaking work to be sure is replaced in our yeah. society yeah. by the need to fill hours on these news cycles. Yeah. And personality. I mean, yeah. it's a lot about yeah. personality. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the airplane, the, that airplane this is the perfect, uh, the Philippines airplane that disappeared. Uh, that's a perfect example of how that can run amok. Yeah. Right. And there, but I think also what, that film, the film has influenced, like you said, the generation of journalists, but I think people come back to that film over and over again and become journalists as well from the next generation and the next generation. I think so. Film I hope carries so. over. Yeah, I really be do. Because there's some great work being done on Vox. There's some great work being done on Mashable. There's great work on these online websites that you can find these fantastic writers that really go deep on the subjects and interesting subjects and not just media, not just with politics, also international politics. What You can learn so much about how the world functions and money situations and banks, like, all this stuff is there to explore and understand if you want to take the time. If you want to take the time. Yeah, and you have that's to. That's the thing. You have to. And the, the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm getting a little on my soapbox right here. That's all right. I, it, I know that there are people who listen to the show who get really upset when we talk politics. Do they? Yeah. They do? Uh, yeah, they we've get upset? That, we've gotten that a few times. All right. <laughs> um, Welcome is, to the world, people. <laughs> the world is politics. I hate um, to break it to you. And obviously, if you've listened enough and listened today, we have our political opinion. Sure. I want to talk about something I think uh, applies to both sides. Okay. okay. Which is I want to talk about bias just for a moment. Sure. Because what you see with Woodward and Bernstein is the dedication to the truth. Yes. Not Woodward's a Republican, Bernstein's a Democrat. They want to find the truth. Right. And what we've seen today is that people have said, well, we're all biased. And because we're all biased, you can't really do that. And they've abdicated responsibility to seek the truth. Mm -hmm. And in its place, what they've done is they've created institutions that are built on bias. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Fox News or MSNBC, mm -hmm. they're both like their mission statement is we are going to create, talk about things from this perspective yeah. or that perspective. And then their way of eliminating bias is they say, well, in order to be, quote unquote, fair and balanced, we're going to have someone from the left and someone yeah. from the right argue the point. Right. And the idea is that like you as a judge at a trial would be able to stand over this dialectic and be able to make a determination of what the truth is. Mm -hmm. You've heard both sides and you make the, you understand the truth. But it does not work that way. Mm -hmm. It does not work that way. And the reason it doesn't work that way, first of all, the two people that have, have been brought on to do this, or the four or five people, they have been hired not for their ability to understand the truth, but for their ability to represent a specific bias. Yeah. So neat, both of them are giving you a distorted version 
version of reality. Mm -hmm. And then we all have our biases too. You're a left-leaning person, you're a right-leaning person. And because of um, that bias, what we tend to do is that we tend to listen to, accept, and enjoy those things that represent our own worldview mm -hmm. and reject and dislike or not even hear a lot of times mm -hmm. those facts, ideas, or opinions which represent the other worldview. And so when you watch these two people or three or four debate a moment, you will tend to like the person who's talking from your perspective and think the other person is crazy. Mm -hmm. So while the idea is that you're going to hear both sides and you're going to make your own logical conclusion and find the truth through it, what's actually happening is that you are further reinforcing your own bias over and over and over again. And because what you're being presented with is distorted to begin with, your worldview is now distorted. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is fight against that. Mm -hmm. And what makes this situation so much worse, and I'm sorry to be on my soapbox about it, no. but it's something I'm very passionate about, is that it's not just the media anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, when, did, when did things change from being journalism to the media? That's one I, I always wonder terrible. about. When they, when they floated that idea. When they, yeah. even, you even heard it in this movie. Yeah. When he said, when you have, they have the actual uh, footage of the, of the, I think it's the press secretary having that comment about the media, about new, the newspapers, about this kind of thing. Yeah. So it's been the Republican calling card, the media, the media, the media. And then now, now well, it's also big business. Democrats have come. Yeah, that's right. It's big business and Democrats have, have lined in. And most of the people who own these big news corporations are Republicans. You know, Rupert Murdoch is a Republican. He's conservative. Guys, so it has this kind of bent. It is a way to denigrate this institution, right? To undercut the institution, as if you can't attack me because you're flawed yourself. This narrative is ridiculous to me. And uh, Steve, I think you make excellent points, very, very valid points. It takes a lot of effort to hear the other side, but by the same token, there are many of us who can are willing to hear the other side as long as not presented to me in sound bites that are not complex, layered, and and intelligent discussions the second you go and co and, and cop out with the media and you cop out with these with these terms then i don't listen to you the second you go i hear what you're saying but here's what we think here's what we put together now look at this this and this then i'm listening intelligent discourse is what we're missing it's not about like oh this person or that person bias or whatever in my opinion i think for me i'm happy to be unbiased present me intelligent discourse between two intelligent people from both sides and then I can make a decision because that is actually a judge listening to... Intelligent to people who feel it is their responsibility to represent not their side... Not their side, right. ...but the truth. Right, exactly. Well, if their this, bias this is, is the thing fine. that goes back to things like you know the movie Network and like where they yeah. talk about when, yeah. when it became Networks a, a money-making thing, when, when yep. the news became money-making. Yep. That's one of the transitions that we've talked about. I mean, this is the thing with, with political campaigns and, and um, presidential mm -hmm. things is like... Like, I tend to not listen to the commentary about what someone thinks about someone's political campaign. Right. Because, again, it's all speculation. It's all just some pers random person's musing on the thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily feel like that gives me all that much information that, yeah. that that's beneficial to what I'm trying to learn about right. a, a candidate. And so I think this is all part of that same problem that we're dealing with. And it's, it's you know, it's been going downhill for years about, yeah. you know, the media taking place of journalism, you know, the things mm -hmm. of, of, of entertainment taking the place of news, right. you know, of sensationalism taking the place of truth. You know, it's, 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 it's this yeah. thing that's just been a, a problem. And I feel like I don't know, I don't know how we're going to fix it, but I feel like it's important that we fix it. Yeah. And, and I feel like they've succeeded by, by coining this term, the media as the, as the shield to hide behind, uh, this idea that we see in the movie, this idea of the media, this idea of the bias, this idea of all this stuff, it provides convenient cover.
right? And I think this is what we see in the movie over and over again. And the thing that's changed now is that with the advent of social media, you have all become, we have all Mm -hmm. become the reporters. And so we Mm. see a story and we see a meme or a quote or something and we repost it. And I want everyone out there, because this is just so important to every time you post something, I want you to think of Woodward and Bernstein. And I want you to think, (laughs) wait, have I verified my source? Would would Woodward accept that as truth? Yeah, would we? Would can Bernstein we accept this float is true? that as his? Uh, Am I sure? Because yeah. over thing. and over and over again, people post things that are misquoted, misleading. Yeah. Where the they don't read the article. Read the article. Don't post anything if you right. didn't read the article. Right. Where the headline doesn't match the article, or it is inflammatory, or it says things like "You won't believe the something yeah, that someone's yeah. doing today." I hate those. Right, right. Then you should be concerned mm-hmm. about this source. Let's if ask you, ourselves, what would Ben Bradley do? Yeah, <laughs> and only then you post it. I'll tell you one more thing. When you post something and it ends up being wrong and someone says, hey, that's not really true, then be the reporter. Be the newspaper and offer a retraction. Put up and say, you know what? I was wrong about this. Mm -hmm. Here's the correct information. Apologize. And that's how our society is going to get better because the responsibility is now on us. Yeah. And it's a great point, Stephen. And I I want to clarify what I said earlier about this media thing. I want to make my point even clearer in this. In the film, you see them mess up the situation with Haldeman, right? Because, Because the tightrope they're walking is so high that the first mistake you make, the whole thing could fall apart, right? It's like a Jenga thing, right? And so this is what happens now by what they've made them. They've made the media so such a negative term that the second they get one thing wrong, or they're like, see, they're wrong. They're, they're not trustworthy. They're not trustworthy. You mean the CIA who messed this up? We're going to listen to the CIA. And it's like, Everybody fucks up. There's not some kind of situation where you can't have you you can't have truth coming out of people who've made mistakes or organizations that have made mistakes. You absolutely can. You cannot just completely destroy an organization from investigating you because they made a couple of mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes, including you. So therefore, you can. That's the theory that people operate under now in this political discourse that frustrates the living shit out of me. Man. Well, and this brings up an excellent point of what's a good test to know if someone's a good source. Well, the good test is what do they do when they fuck up? Right. Because, like, for instance, the New York Times said that uh, Donald Trump had moved the Martin Luther King bus statue right. out of his Oval Office, which right. he didn't. Well, the New York Times immediately retracted it yep. and offered an apology. If they retract and say, hey, I was wrong, we messed this up, that's a source you can trust. Absolutely. More than a source. I never said that. Yeah. I didn't do that. Right. I didn't mean that. Right. Well, you know, just or, like... Or, or just pay no attention to the, this right. thing you that know? happened. Or I, didn't, I, I wasn't implying that Ivanka... That was a sexual term for Ivanka Trump speaking into the microphone. Hey, I'm going to take a vacation for a little while. That's exactly what just happened today with Jason Waters. He went on vacation, unannounced vacation for four days. Why? Because he knew what he got did, he did and he got caught and he got smoked. Yeah. And that's how it works. Well, Instead every, of admitting, you know what? I did. I, miss, I misspoke. I apologize. I made a sexual reference. I shouldn't have done that. That's my fault. No, don't run off and take a vacation. You know, you have standards for friends and yeah, people you hang out with. And there are people you know who never take responsibility for their actions. They yeah. deny and they lie. And maybe you don't hang, hang out with them anymore. Yeah. You know, so I pay do. attention, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Who has a great soapbox? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. We all got on there. was enough room for the three of us. It's a big it's soapbox. It's a big soapbox. <laughs> do they have soapboxes that people can stand on anymore? Of course. I don't know if I stood on that Tide box from downstairs. I think it just collapsed under my weight. (laughs) We've just replaced them with Apple boxes. When I I stood in, when I was studied in London in '98, they had that you could go on Sundays to To this park, Park. Hyde Park, Park, and people brought their own boxes with stand stand up. They they give soliloquies. Yeah, I think that probably still happens. Speaker's speakers corner, speaker's corner, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I think we got a good sense of it. But Karen, can I ask you, (laughs) what are your final thoughts on all the presidents' men? Uh, My final thoughts on this movie. 
it's just I love it so much. I mean, when people ask me, you know, top five movies of all time, this is always in the top five. Wow. This is a movie that I don't, you know, I never get tired of it. And it's been so pivotal in making me who I am and the way that I think and how I am politically active and how I am in the way that I think about the mm-hmm. world. And and I just love it. But I also love it because of the filmmaking, like because we've said it's taking something that should be so dry and so boring and it puts together this amazing group of people, you know, the cinematographer, the production designer, the casting director, the director, the producer, all of the actors, everybody is working together to take what it is that they are good at, listen to each other and figure out how they can take this very strange story and make it cinema- cinematic and, and appealing and compelling. And they mm-hmm. do it so well that it just gets me every time. Yeah. What about you? Uh, to me, this is one of my favorite films as well. I wouldn't put it in my top 10 for me, but it's, it is absolutely a film that people need to revisit and watch over and over and over again for so many reasons that Karen just stated. Also, the acting is so powerful. For me as an actor, watching the acting in this film is so powerful. Watching the way the scenes are written, William Goldman does a great job of consolidating a two-year story into two hours. It's pretty difficult. Two hours and 15 minutes is pretty difficult to do, and he's able to do it, and Pakula's direction is impeccable. Absolutely. The, yeah, and the pacing of the film is good, and the movement... And I think what the film has to say speaks my language personally, the idea of the search for truth. Regardless of where you're coming from, it's the search for truth, which Steve, you've said numerous times throughout this podcast. It is, regardless of what political party you are, it's about finding the truth. Why? Because of what Ben Bradley says in that speech, the, the future of America is at stake here. And it is, it's not overstating it. Our principles can be seen as a rickety bridge or a concrete bridge. It's your choice what you see it as. And it's your choice how you want to either reinforce that bridge or walk on that bridge proudly. And that's the difference for me. And this film really shows you how, what the different approaches are to government. And I think this is fantastic. And, and once again, it's a great detective story because you think you're opening an umbrella when in fact you're opening a massive house-sized house, house tent, right? <laughs> you think it's going to be an umbrella and all of a sudden the umbrella is way bigger than you thought it was. And there's so much underneath it that you didn't think connected to what the overall story was and you're like oh my gosh this is amazing and it's so well done and the way it ends is perfect just perfect black frame you decide what this all what this is all about it's perfect um i love what you said about the rickety bridge and i just i just think like this one of the things i've been thinking about a lot is how important faith in our system is to the survival of our system Mm -hmm. and right now that bridge is really rickety yes because because our our faith has been brought into question over decades yeah the last two decades And, and one of the places that faith started cracking Watergate. Watergate. Yes. Yeah. Watergate. Yes. Um, so we talked a lot about truth and politics and reporting and journalism. And, you know, again, I don't want to give you the impression that this is a dry film. No. This is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's going to be my final thought. It is a compelling, entertaining, well done, funny, funny, <laughs> yeah. thrilling, scary, dramatic, powerful movie. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, You've, we've, I mean, we can't spoil that Nixon resigned, <laughs> but we spoiled everything else too. Please watch it if you. I think you should seen go it. watch it, especially way, younger people out there. Please watch yeah. it. It's By the way, so Nixon good. was a president for the younger people that we. Yeah. <laughs> the 70s. Do we really have yeah, to say that? <laughs> um, so that's what we think of all the presidents, man. We obviously think a lot. Uh, I hope you think a lot too, and I yeah. hope when you have your thoughts about this film, share them with us on our yeah. Facebook page at the Cinephile C I N E dash F I L E S. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher where they now have our dash. Yeah. So Cine 
dash files. You can look there. Um, I know uh, some people uh, prefer to watch us on YouTube. So you can search us on YouTube. We love it when you uh, watch on YouTube and give mm-hmm. us your comments there because it's so great to get comments that are for the specific episode mm-hmm. because when you leave your review on iTunes, which I certainly hope you do, mm-hmm. that's more about the whole show, but we definitely want those reviews as well. They help us a lot. They help us move up in the rankings. Yeah. And um, of course, you can always reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? Oh, you guys can always reach me at the Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and on Instagram. Every Friday is on Collider for Movie Talk, obviously this show, and the Outlaw Nation podcast on the Schmozno Plus Podcast Network. Yeah. Coming it's my soon. life. Coming soon. Or, that, already out by now. It might already be out. Yeah, I might be recording the first episode tonight. And Karen, I won't say that you're not social, but you are not out on the social networks. Really? No, I haven't been on Twitter for like three years. Wow. I still have an account, but I'm, I'm not on it. All right, so. so nobody can follow you anywhere. I mean, they could try, but I probably wouldn't respond. <laughs> you're like deep really throat. You're bad. hiding out in the chat. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a strange thing about casting directors. We try to keep a little to ourselves. Well, I, I follow a lot of them on Twitter. Yeah, so but there's some that are yeah. that get overwhelmed by yeah, I'm uh, sure. by, yeah. by that. Cast me so. in the show, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, the, people can come out. I've seen people chase Karen or other casting directors out of a party. Wow. Trying they, to talk to them. Because they want to talk to yeah. us about oh. the help yeah. that we can do oh, for geez. them. So. Um, but Karen... I see you every day, <laughs> but it was really nice having you on the podcast. Yes, thank Thanks. you, Karen. And you could always put, put questions to, to Steve Absolutely. for me, and I'd be I happy to answer them. So. I, I will. Or John, but yeah. I see Steve more no, often than I yeah, see John. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's really, really great having you on the podcast. Yes. Thank you this so much for having me. I love this movie so much, and I'm just happy to be here. So. Yeah. Um, and that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.